Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at dgscoins.com. That's dgscoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. And this is the American Independence Hour. I have to think about it for a minute because I also do financial survival five days a week. And sometimes I'm in the habit of saying financial survival. And I am tempted to say financial survival rather than American Independence Hour. But I remembered. Frank would have probably reminded me he's the co-host. Frank would probably have reminded me, but I can't rely on him to be sure. He might, if I'd said financial survival, he might have corrected me, but maybe not. Frank no, will join I, us. I just in, only do that when you get the days wrong. The days? <laughs> well, the days have to do with anything. Well, when it's Monday and it should be Tuesday. <laughs> Stuff like that. That's, that depends <laughs> on whether... That depends on whether you're, you're, you're calculating... I wasn't wrong about that. You understand? <laughs> I was just testing you That's it. to see if you knew it was whether mis- it was Monday or Tuesday. Spoken test. That's it. Yeah. Al is running for president now. <laughs> Listen, anybody. This really is a country where anyone can grow up to be president. Yeah. We got a Kenyan now, and we had a moron before him, and a serial rapist before that. I don't know. I mean, yeah, things uh, are getting better. Why do they even bother to give put it? There's a few qualifications. I think you have to be 35. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 35 and natural born, of course. Uh, you know, that means natural born citizen of the United States from anywhere, I guess. I don't know. I think it means that you were born, you were not born artificially. You know what they've done? They've actually made the term naturally born citizen of the United States of the same type of statement as Republican form of government. Nobody knows what it really means, so they just make it up. You know what's interesting about that? If you really wanted to 
play with the idea of what it means to be a natural-born citizen, would that include people who were born by cesarean section? Absolutely not. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, technically, I'm not sure if, if you've been born by Maybe you don't have any standing at law or something. I don't know. Um, let me do my little dance here. I want to remind everybody that I am a man made in God's image as per Genesis uh, 1, 26 through 28. I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights as per the Declaration of Independence, second sentence. And then I'm broadcasting from within the borders of a state of the Union that would be the state of Texas. And the proper name for the Union, the perpetual Union, is the United States of America. Got to do that, Frank. Got that little, got certain amount of compulsion there. I know that they have turned. I can, I can see it. They have turned the black helicopters around. They were on the way, but now they heard that. Yep, they're gone. All right, he did it again. Jeez, we thought we had him this time. Yeah, and also the pink elephants. Yeah, well, yeah. One of the things I have, I keep saying that I don't see any pink elephants. We don't talk about that. that, Okay. so how long was the last time I had any alcohol? I was 32, so I don't know, 38 years, something like that, since I've had uh, voluntarily consumed any alcohol. Apparently alcohol doesn't work for me the way it did for you, because I never see any pink ele- elephants or anything. I mean, I, never, I didn't necessarily I didn't see anything good, see? But I hear them. Oh, okay, well, all and, right, well then, never that's mind. And the, <laughs> the place I was living in the morning, it kind of looked like, I was pretty sure there must have been a large wild animal. Oh, right? well, you could just hear them. Well, then, okay, never mind. Because assumed, We assumed they were pink. Yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> it was a presumption. Uh-huh. Let's start out with Genesis 1-1. I've talked about it a time or two before, but every time I see Genesis 1-1, it always amazes me. I've been aware of this for about 10 years. I don't know how many other people have recognized this on their own. I've talked about it from time to time on the program, but, you know, it may be that this is common knowledge to a bunch of people, but for me, this was a remarkable discovery. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And most people don't find anything too remarkable about that. For most people, it's, again, it's the introduction to a, you know, a book, a story, whatever. And it's a little like saying, it was a dark and stormy night. It's just the initial sentence that introduces you to the book you're about to read. But in fact, after having studied a little bit about trusts, and I understand the concept, I have some understanding of the concept of legal title and equitable title, and having a little bit of background dealing with copyright, just because I published a magazine for a period of time, and indirectly patents, I understand that the Creator owns whatever it is that He creates. He has perfect title to whatever it is that He's created. And so, if I create a book, I have the copyright on the book. I have perfect title to that book, at least initially. I have both legal title and equitable title, and I can do whatever I want with my property. This is why intellectual property is so important these days, in my opinion, most of what we build and buy and purchase and whatever is done with a legal tender that divides title. And unbeknownst to most people, you don't really get legal title whatever you purchase. 
And without that legal title, you don't really own it. You have a right to use it, but you don't own it. You don't have the right of disposal. You don't have real control. That control is reserved for the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, maybe the federal government, but whoever owns those green pieces of paper in your wallet, whoever owns, whoever loaned them into circulation, that they get legal title to whatever it is you purchase with those green pieces of paper. You only get equitable title, and it, it compromises your rights. It, it does a bunch of bad things. But if you create things on your own, by virtue of the act of creation, you actually own both legal and equitable title the same way you might if you had bought something with gold or silver coin back prior to 1933 or even 1968 with silver, 33 with gold and 68 with silver. You would get legal title. You would have standing at law relative to your property, your, your land, your home, whatever. Right now, with fiat currency, all you get is equitable title. A right of use, but that can be overcome at any time. I mean, you just you're, you're like sharecroppers, and most of us don't understand that. But we sense it. We see how is it that the government can push me around, and tell me how high the grass can grow on my land? Well, it's not your land. How can they give you a traffic ticket because you didn't fasten your seatbelt? Well, because it's not your car. It's the government's car. They hold legal title to it. You just have an equitable right to use it, and therefore they can tell you what to do with their with what you believe to be your your car, because in fact it's their car. Now, but you know, there I understand this. I I really do, and I think a lot of people out there. It's good that you explain it several times because it's important. Leave. But it's, it's, it's hard. hard to believe, and it's in, and it's it's kind of complicated when w given the circumstances of what we're told and what's real. You know, we're told, well, this is money, and there you go, and off. You know, yeah, you pay for this, you pay for that, but really, you're just discharging debt, and sure. in reality, it's not nothing's really being paid for. However, you know, there is more going on. This is multi-layered. You know what's going on because there is also fraud taking place here and fraud vitiates the most solemn contracts and there's the law of necessity they have taken away the money they have made it illegal you can't go down to the store with a gold coin and say well hey, i want to pay for my groceries i mean the guy could say okay i'll take that but he doesn't have to it's not legal tender for you know anything so you know we have the law of necessity i gotta have things I've got to have food. I've got to have water. I've got to have things to live. And I have a right to live, so there's a necessity. And the money system has been because, I mean, just the fact that they say, hey, this is money. Yeah, pay your bills. Well, that's a fraud because it's not money, and I'm not actually paying my bills with this. So there's fraud going on. There's necessity to use it, and there is also... If I possess something, well, you know, the old saying, possession's nine-tenths of the law. And the, if the other tenth is fraud, you know, really they don't have a lot to stand on. And, I, and my point behind it is they will come and tell you how high the grass can be. They will come and tell you this and that and the other thing unless you stand up and know yep. what's really going on and say, oh, no, you're not, and here's <laughs> why.
and you might be in for a big fight, and you might be in for a surprise. They may go, huh, you know, some other time maybe, see you, and you'll never see them again. See, there's one thing that I, I agree with most of what you're saying, but I'm not sure that we can make the case of fraud. For this reason, it is at least presumed that you know what you're doing. And more than that, it's presumed that you do so, that you, when you use those green pieces of paper, you do so voluntarily. True. And, and you know, when you look at that's a big, and the reason that's important is because if they try to force you to use those green pieces of paper, then we have a problem. I think they have to let you volunteer. The presumption has to be that you're doing this voluntarily. If you can stand up and say, no, I am compelled to do this. I know this is a bunch of crapola, but I am compelled to deal with it anyway because I don't have any other means to get food or gasoline or whatever it is right. I need. Necessities right of life, yeah. Yeah, you have to make an express objection. I've heard people allegedly make stamps that they yeah. put up yeah. their dollars that say, I object. I'm using it, but I'm using it because oh, I Oh, gosh, I, I knew people that. down here that they, gosh, they must have went and bought... You know, there must have been 10 different people, and they all went and bought. And the local, I think it was Office Depot, was, yeah. you know, they, they so many of them went down there with the stamp that they, oh, okay. You know, and they knew exactly what they wanted, and uh, uh -huh. they stamped <laughs> every bill they got, you know, that went in their wallet. They just stamped them, and, and then, you know, they would put it out there. And I think there's something to what you're saying. I don't think you got to put a stamp on every bill you use, but I think I some... agree. But you know, for example, when you're going into court and you want to be a plaintiff, right? You're going to you're going to pay a filing fee. Now, as soon as you pick up, you pay that filing fee sure. in in legal tender, and I think you've you've diminished your rights right there. They say, well, he's coming in, he's. He's only got legal tender. We're only going to get him into a court of equity. And the problem is that a court of law, everyone is bound by the law, including the judge. And in a court of equity, a judge can do anything he wants. He is ruled only by his own conscience. Oh, I, I, I agree like, with that. With the guys, he can throw you in the slammer. I agree with that with the court. I mean, and, and you don't even want... It, hey, I'm so paranoid, and I've heard enough different stories from different places about... Hey, I don't even want to be in court with Federal Reserve notes in my pocket. Oh, yeah. You know, just in case. Yeah. Just in case the guy says, oh, yeah? Empty his pockets. Let's see what's mm -hmm. in there. Well, you know, I want them to be able to, when they empty my pockets, what they'll find is two one-tenth gold pieces in my wallet. Can, you know, and then they'll go, oh, hmm. Well, okay. Never mind. That, that didn't work, so. Yep, never mind. Yeah, you know, so, you know, yeah, and, and definitely, and make the point, you know, but you're going to have to give them Federal Reserve notes if you want to do a filing fee, but I think some sort of written objection along with it is... I agree is, with that. Is That's entered into the record. Exactly, that it's yeah. part of this case. Yeah. That, you know what, hey... You know, I it's all you would take. It's what you demanded. It's necessity. It's the only access I have to this court. You know, uh, so okay, but I object. And yeah. the, you know, just like any objection, and I learned this the hard way, because you know, uh, it's kind of like a monkey with a gun. You know, uh, you go, oh boy, what a great idea! I can go in court and I can object. Well, yeah, okay, you can, but 
I learned the hard way that he said, blah, 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 and you, I object, Your Honor. And then comes the magic question, on what grounds? Yeah. Well, you better have some grounds. Mm-hmm. Or else <laughs> you're, you're going nowhere. And if he, you keep doing it... He, he looked at me funny, Your Honor. Yeah, and if you keep doing prosecutor's it... prosecutor's got a strange look. I can, and, and I can tell you from experience, if you keep doing it, the yeah. judge will threaten you with contempt. You know, if you keep objecting without grounds, yeah. he will tell... He has. I, it's happened to me. Because I didn't know any better. I just figured, oh, that corrupt court, you know, I'm just... I object, I object. You know, <laughs> that's good enough. But, you know, like I say, a monkey with a gun. That was me. I've, I've, I admit it. I've been that in court. But you learn, you know, when did you, you go. Know how, as, as a monkey, did you know how to load the gun? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if it was loaded. You know, yeah. I uh, didn't trouble myself with those details at the time. But, uh, you know, I, I learned later that, oh, oh, I see. Oh, I got to have a reason. Okay, well, it's important. And if you have good reasons, and if you have legal reasons, and if you back them up, one other thing I found about objections and grounds, it's good to have a thing called judicial notices. And, you know, if you kind of know how things go, you can kind of project how it's going to go. Anticipate. Yeah. And you can have these things ready. And judicial notices are... They're they're in the rules, and they tell you exactly what you can do and what you can't do and how to do them, and they carry a lot of weight. Now, the judge can just ignore them like the lower courts do with a lot of stuff, but what you're doing in the lower court is you're building yourself an appealable case. And yep. you know if you're you know, and that's if you're in court, which we all know is is not a good place to be. Uh, probably you you. Either you were either neglectful or you've done something wrong because you're there, you know. Yep. I mean, uh, but if you are there, then you're going to have to deal with it, you know. And uh, so, you know, the uh, judicial notices are good because they're in the rules. There's something that is on paper and it goes in the record because, man. Well, that's the most important thing is inter- introducing documents into the record, introducing testimony and evidence into the record. You go to a classic municipal court, the judge says uh, the, the judge is processing a traffic ticket. You stand up and, testify, and, and talk to the judge. You're not sworn in, typically. No, not in traffic right? court, generally. You just shoot the breeze with the judge for a while, and they ask you a couple of questions, and you say, well, I didn't like it, and the judge says, uh, I find you guilty. Yeah. Yada yada. They can get away with that because the only evidence are the two copies of the ticket, yours and the cops that's in the in the court record. Yep. That's the only evidence. All the rest of it is white noise unless someone is sworn in. And then if someone says something under oath on the record, it's introduced into evidence now. Someone else has to take the witness stand to swear under oath that that's not true. Yep, and, and if um, they don't counter man, or they don't they, they they don't counter your your testimony that this this and this was were the true facts. If they can't get someone to swear to the contrary, then you win. Well, but if I all mean, you're going to you know, do is shoot the breeze without introducing evidence, yeah. 
Well, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, entering affidavits and entering judicial notices and entering this stuff, and I'd like this entered into the record, you know, uh, and I found that out, too. I mean, it seems stupid, and it seems overly, uh, geez, there you go again with the word thing, uh, but <laughs> don't... It's yeah. a word game, and it's yeah. like, there may I and Simon says. And they they will, if you don't do, yeah, if you don't do the Simon Says thing, You'll lose because they you can. can. It's up to the judge. I mean, cheat. if they like you or you're the mayor's son or something like that, yeah, they'll yeah. let you be as dumb as you want. Sure. On the other hand, if they don't like you, <laughs> yeah, you better have it together. Like you by 180 points in order to pull this off because the judge can do whatever he wants in equity. Well, sure. Except you know there is the thing though when they start realizing what you're doing, yeah, that you are building evidence. Yep. And you are building an appealable case. And it doesn't take them very long. Because they're really, they're not stupid, okay? We might like to, you know, I mean, it would be a lot of them. Some of them are. Some of them are pretty ignorant, yeah. But, I mean, most of them are not stupid. And the thing is, it's like we would rather think they're stupid. Because stupid is much better than the truth. Yeah. The truth is they're evil and corrupt and they have real bad intent, Uh Stupid is just, well, you know, it's just stupid. There's a certain random, randomness and no intent. Right. You know, There's so. a wicked intent. It's just stupid. Right. That's all. Yeah, which uh, isn't as bad. Which, you well, know, want to believe. Yeah. But the thing is, I've seen this happen where, you know, you go in and you go, okay, I got the judicial uh, notices, I've got affidavits, and you just go blah, 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 and you go, okay, you know, uh, and you hand it to the bailiff to hand it to the judge, right? Well, you you better be sure to say I want this entered into the record. Yep. Or they won't. I'll tell you another one. When you file paperwork, when you deposit paperwork with the court clerk, yep, have it filed, not entered. Well, it's supposed to be received. Okay. All right. If they only file it, all oh. that is is it simply it's that just says well we this guy came in and he gave us some paperwork and he stuck in that filing cabinet over there. <laughs> it's got to be received as in received under into evidence. All right, before. Well, it, you know it must be it, it should be stamped received at least ideally to indicate that it's been received into evidence in the case and not merely filed and said oh, it's over there in a corner someplace I don't know we I think I put it under that book look under that book see if it's there it's there it's available if anybody wants to call for it but it has not yet been received into evidence I've seen attorneys when they file their motions or. Uh, their their petitions into the court, they will attach a cover letter instructing the court clerk what to do with this document. Hmm. And if you don't have that cover letter, it's only going to be filed. It's equivalent of saying, well, some guy came in and he gave me some stack of papers. I didn't say what he wanted me to do with them, so I just stuck them over there in the corner. <laughs> but if you bring that letter in the first place and say, "I want this document introduced into the uh, 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 introduced into the uh, case file," I'm just spitballing here. Right I don't into the record, into the case. Yeah, yeah. But I want this, and I want the case heard at a in a court of law. 
I do not accept an administrative court. I do not accept a court of equity. I want this heard in a court mm-hmm. of law. And why? Because I have legal title. The legal title to the property in question is critical to, to, to solving this uh, this issue. Oh, absolutely. Now, I don't know exactly how to write it out, but I am convinced you got to put that cover letter in there with your paperwork. Tell the clerk what to do. Absolutely, I, I agree. I agree with that, and that's a good idea because they they will use every call it a loophole, trick, deception, whatever you want to call it. They'll use every opportunity to defeat you. Yeah, I know. You know, and it's it, you just got to be very clear, and you got to be, hey, this is what I want done, and boom. Yeah. And let them tell you no. Yeah. Exactly. And then let them tell you no and create evidence that becomes an issue to be decided in the courts or the appellate courts. That's right. And some of these issues, you can even say, okay, that's it. I know we're in the middle of this case, but I'm appealing this. I'm appealing that decision. Uh, what do they call it? Interlocutory appeal? Interlocutory appeal. That's right. During the course of the trial, you are entitled to appeal to a higher court. You don't like the judge's ruling? You said, I object. The judge says, nice try, Sonny, but no cigar. You can, I want, you can essentially ask for an interlocutory appeal. Mm-hmm. And you can take, and everything stops. Yeah. All right? And then you get to a higher court. And you tell them, look, Judge so-and-so said such-and-such, and and I think he's wrong. Well, maybe the higher court agrees with you, and maybe they disagree. (laughs) But the thing is, you don't get to a higher court. You don't just file for an interlocutory appeal and and walk across the hallway to get into the higher court, and I'll be back in five minutes. No, you got enough time for a lengthy vacation at that point. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) And the judges hate that, of course. Sure. And the attorneys will not try it because they'll only try it maybe once or twice in their life before they are threatened with losing their license to steal and never winning another case. Yeah. The judges don't like interlocutory appeals, but if you're not a licensed thief, that shouldn't disturb you. No, and you know, you know, the the, that's the thing. Just it, tell those jurors we'll be back. You guys will be back in a couple of months here. We'll yeah, see we'll have this. a new set of you. But it may not time. be a couple of months. It could be a couple of weeks. It might be a couple. Of, I don't know. It might be a few days. I don't know how uh, fast. From what I've get, heard, they have quite a backlog, and uh, at least here they in can Oregon, get in line. Yeah, at least here in Oregon, they've got a backlog, and uh, it's not going to be a quick thing because if you're in the district court, which is now the circuit court, you know we we got <laughs> Oregon just got rid of district courts and now they're all circuit courts really yeah they just we're getting rid of those they're just Why? we're keeping all the same judges and all the same courthouses and all the same everything we're just not having district courts anymore we'll just have circuit courts now that's real interesting to me yeah well they did that years why? ago i i don't i that i don't know i don't know why let me be let me understand this clearly are you saying they have Changed the name and nature of the courts just recently, or this was this happened five or ten years ago? Yeah, five or ten years ago they did this, uh, where you know Oregon used to just kind of like the federal system. They used to have district courts and circuit courts, right? And and they and and honestly, they were pretty much the same thing in the state system. 
And I don't know, uh, maybe they got rid of him because they realized this is this has become redundant. But, you know, when they started, I'm sure it wasn't redundant. You know, I'm sure they no, had different be. jurisdictions. This, this, is no, this is a big deal. This is not an accident. They didn't say, listen, I got an idea. Why don't we call <laughs> the Oregon Happy Face Court? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Smiley face, you know, instead of the flag, we'll put a smiley face in. Listen, when they change a word, they change a name, something important has happened. They don't do it for no reason, and they won't change the names of the courts for a trivial reason. It's not just fun. Something happened at that point. Yeah, what it was. I am not sure what. I'll have to look at it a little bit. But it happened when I was uh, I was already living here when it happened, uh, because I remember they, they the, it's no longer the district court. Now it's the circuit court. Okay, well... They're all circuit courts now. So, basically, in Oregon, you have the the municipal courts or the justices of the peace in the unincorporated areas. And then you have the circuit court. And then you have the Oregon Appeals Court, which is basically the Supreme Court. You know, the Appeals Court is, I think, three of the, three of the nine justices or whatever, uh, you know, is your different parts of the state get assigned different judges, you know. But that's it. That's what we have here. Well, it's one of those things, you know, you need to take a look and see what's going on because everyone thinks they, oh, I'm going to court. Oh, yeah? What kind? You know, it's not clear to me what kind of court you're going into all the time. Well, one thing that they've changed a lot, a lot of these agencies now run their own administrative hearings. I mean, you 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 go sideways with any of these dealings with any of these agencies. Yep. You end up in a in a administrative hearing rather than a court where yep. you used to end up in a court. And or, you know, and, and for instance, one of the things is when your car gets impounded. Yeah. Here in Oregon, cop impound your car. You say, "Hey, I don't think that was proper." You end up at the circuit court. Not anymore. Now you end up in an administrative hearing with the agency that stole your car. That's now fair. there's got to be a way of getting around that. What do you think is the danger in that? Well, obviously there's a conflict of interest. I mean, you have employees of the agency that stole your car deciding if stealing your car was proper. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about it on this program before, I think. The idea that administrative law, you can pick up the text on administrative law in American Jurisprudence, second edition, and they'll tell you more than once in the first, second, third pages. They'll tell you a couple of times that administrative law incorporates all three fundamental powers of government under a single authority. You got the executive, you got the executive powers, the legislative powers, the judicial powers are all working under one roof. That means there is no separation of powers in an administrative court. The administrator has all powers. All right, it's a denial of separation of powers. I suspect that when all three of those powers are combined, it's the equivalent of claiming that the court and or the system is the sovereign, and you, since you're not part of the administration, are the subject. Mm-hmm. 
Right? You, if they've got all three powers, the Constitution divided those powers, the Constitution of the United States and state Constitution of Texas, and I'm sure Oregon, they divided the powers into three separate branches. And it's not just... That's not just administrative divisions. Well, you know, it's like you can get Chinese food over here, and you go over here, you get Italian food, and down the road you get Spanish food or Mexican food or whatever. That's not what's going on. <clears throat> when they decide, when they separated those powers, I think they divided sovereignty in a way where no one branch of government could claim to be sovereign for this reason. You're going to get the executive branch effectively represented by the police. They're going to go out there and they're going to arrest you for you've got an out-of-date license on the automobile. Okay. you got one of the three branches that comprise sovereignty has said this guy committed a no-no. Now you are going to go to a court a separate branch, a separate part of the sovereignty, and say, no, this is not right, and here's why. And you're going to look at the law, and the law was written by the third branch, the, 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 the Congress, the legislature, whatever. And you're going to say, they set up the law in this way, and this guy executed the law contrary to their intent and their meaning, and you, sir, have to admit that, this, that these guys are out of order. The point I'm trying to get to is that the cop's not sovereign, the legislature is not sovereign, and the court is not sovereign in under a three-party system of government. But when you get into an administrative tribunal where all three of them are working together and all three fundamental powers are under the same roof, I think you're dealing with a sovereign. And they can do any damn thing they want. Well, yeah, they're, they they're, and you are just the subject. You put up with it, or you you better learn to like it, Sonny, or you're going. You're or, not, you know, the way they put it is checks and balances. And if you've got checks on you, then you're not a sovereign, because a sovereign operates. Wait a minute, by is this fashion advice we're talking about right now? <laughs> yeah. Saying if we go to court wearing checks and maybe carrying a balance or well, something. no, like but that. flannel is not not recommended for court. All right. At least not in the summer months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but the thing is, if you have somebody looking over your shoulder going, wait a minute, no, 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 you're not a sovereign. You know, because sovereigns, they, they operate by their will. I do because I want to do, and that's that. And I've yeah. decided, and that's the way it is. That's what a sovereign does. Well, somebody who within goes within limits. Well. Sure. Within limits. The sure. sovereign is still... Is still subject to God's law. Sure. Point one, because sovereignty flows from God, in my opinion. Um, it's a function of the unalienable rights. You get them from God. That's what made the, the king of England got his rights from God. He had the divine right of kings. Those divine rights are what made him sovereign. Oh, yeah. And one, when they declared we get our rights uh, in the Declaration, we get the unalienable rights from our Creator. They were saying we are all sovereigns. We get our rights from our Creator. But the idea behind the administrative tribunal, in my opinion, is that it's absolutely voluntary. They take you there. If you're going to go, fine. But if you don't, you don't have to. And I've tried this at least on one occasion. I don't actually know if it worked. They did drop the case. But I don't know if this was the reason or to what extent this played in. But the argument is I'm one of the people of the state of Texas. 
as declared in the preamble of the, of the Constitution of the state of Texas. I am entitled to separation of powers. As such, I'm, an, I'm a beneficiary of the Constitution of the state of Texas. I am entitled to the separation of powers declared in Article 2 in the Constitution of the state of Texas. And therefore, I do not consent to an administrative hearing or tribunal. Take me to a judicial Article 5 court. In Texas, the judicial branch is in Article 5. All right, that's not administrative. They, you look at the judge, you've got a black, black nighty on. You say, oh, that must be a judge. Well, yeah, but what kind? Yeah, but you know, now, if you are not under, if you haven't agreed to anything, I agree with all that. That Hey, I don't agree to this, and I, I don't consent to this. You take me to a real, you know, take me to a judicial court. You mm -hmm. want to talk to me. However, like with the impoundment of your car, I believe... The way they're operating is they're saying, well, if you're licensed, then you have agreed. And it's like signing up to your bank. If you've ever Not looked at... If, you've if ever, you're licensed, it's if you're registered. If you've did ever you looked buy your, the car new? Did you send the title to the state? Sure, that's Did you too. say, would you please take legal title to my vehicle? Well, and there's I'll, a, there's I'll, different I'll, ways that I, you know, with the car, you're kind of roped in in, in, in several different ways in, in a way, but... If you've ever read the agreement to, like, opening a bank account nowadays, in that agreement, they actually say, well, you agree by, you know, doing business with us that yep. to arbitration. Arbitration mm -hmm. is like an administrative hearing. Yeah. You know, it's not a judicial, okay, that's it, you robbed me, I'm taking you to court. You're not allowed to, it, you know, by their agreement. And they say, hey, when you sign up with us, you know, hey... You're agreeing. You don't have to do business with us. You're here. You agree. Yeah, I, You'll do I, arbitration. It's private. They have they have created a privatized system, and they have created circumstances where everybody volunteers in because they can't imagine what else they can do. Sure. And they can't even imagine that what they're doing might adversely affect their rights. So they say, oh, yeah. And I think DMV oh. is the same agreement. I think it's a private agreement. I think I you're signing up to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I want to be a professional driver. I want to operate a passenger vehicle. <laughs> you know, I want to I commit commerce on the highways. Yep. Uh, and, and that's what you are agreeing to. You know, by, by getting all the license, the registration, and all the other stuff, you're saying, okay, uh, this is what I want to do because this is what everything says you're doing. Now, you know, your registration says passenger vehicle. Yep. Now, here's the problem. If we're volunteering into all of this, how do we volunteer out? Or even it may be that you can't exactly volunteer out. For example, if I went out and bought a new car, and I send that title down to the state, I believe I've lost legal title to the, to the automobile. I think from then on, the only thing I have is equitable title. I can't prove that yet, but that's what I believe is going on. But suppose I was right, and suppose I went back and said, I want legal title back. Can I get it? Or do I have to set this up in the first place where I somehow manage to acquire and hold legal title to the vehicle up front, and I never send it to the state? See, I've seen it both ways. I had one friend... And he had to go, I don't know if you're familiar with Oregon, but down here in the Medford area, he, had, he tried to go, he wanted a Dodge uh, diesel with a Cummings motor in it. Yep. You know, and they, they were, you know, they were not hard to come by, but he went to every dealership from Ashland 
all the way to Roseburg. Every one of them that carried these trucks. And in Roseburg, he finally found a dealership who gave him the manufacturer's certificate of origin. Yep. None of the others would. They, oh, we don't have it. We don't, it's not a, you know, it's, uh, and they probably didn't have it. You know, they probably, when they come in, because I know I worked at the dealership. When those cars come in off the uh, truck, they come with a big stack of paperwork. Mm-hmm. And that paperwork doesn't go to the sales office, okay? It goes into the main office, and then they do whatever they do with it. The guys who you're actually buying a truck from may have never seen the manufacturer's certificate of origin. Yeah, but there's but you do pay, in addition to the price of the vehicle, you also pay as an additional cost tax, yeah. title, and license. Yep. All right, now, they handle that for you, typically. You pay them an extra, I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it runs into. Maybe pay them an extra 500 or $1,000. what it is. Whatever it is. Yeah, I got it. tax, title, and license. You write out a second check for that. And they say, okay, we'll have it. We'll handle all this, and, we will, and you will get your certificate of title from the, uh, from the state in a week or 10 days at your residential address. They're essentially doing that. But the point is somebody... You are paying for title, and when you pay for it, what I believe you're paying for, when it says tax, title, and license, it doesn't pay to get the title. You're paying the state to take the title. No. You're essentially saying, gee, right. this is troublesome to me, and I don't want the responsibility. And, you know, I might lose this, so why don't you guys hold the you know title? <laughs> I'm going to pay you to take the title to my car. You know, what I, you know what I view it as, Al? I view it as the people that go, you know, I want to buy some gold, but... Gee, it's so heavy. It's so yeah, bulky, yeah, right. and I'm scared. So I'm scared yeah. to have it in my house and yeah. all that. So just send me a certificate of it and keep it in your vault for me, would you? <laughs> you know sure. that sort of thing. And that's pretty much what everybody does with their automobile title. Well, you know, and it's not easily done. I mean, I knew one guy who got the manufacturer's statement of origin, and the way he did it is he went to an adjacent state. Mm-hmm. Think Louisiana, and he found a dealer in Louisiana. He said, "Well, I'm just traveling through here, and I live in Texas, and I'd like to buy that car you have over there." And I think it was new Honda, and uh, they they made the deal, and he bought the vehicle, and he explained the because I'm in Texas, I want to take the certificate of title with me, or or excuse me, the manufacturer's statement of origin. Right. And they said, "And I'll file, and I'll file it into the state when I get to Texas." I'll just drive the car from here back to my home in Texas. Well, the the dealer went along with it, but before it was all done, this guy managed to get himself caught by the cops. So for one thing or another, I don't remember what it was, and they seized the vehicle, and he never did get it back. Wow. Yeah, it didn't. It but didn't, this was fifteen, twenty years ago, yeah, and he here didn't too. Was much, you know. I mean, it's one of those things where you can get, you can be on the right trail, and you can understand, or at least there's a good chance that what you understand is true. But can you implement? Right. And one mistake, huh? and you're over. Yeah, I know. They don't cut you any slack you with this You didn't stuff. say Simon Says. That's right. They don't cut you any slack with this. No. You know, you can say the right answer in Jeopardy, but if you don't say what is, yeah, it doesn't count. 
you that's, lose. That's exactly what we're talking about. You know, and uh, and they, they're not doing you any favors, uh, you know, for this. And I, I don't know if he ever – I know he ran into a lot of problems, uh, the guy that they, they did this. And he would keep his uh, manufacturer's certificate of title taped to his windshield, the inside of his windshield there. And, uh, you know, that's what he did. Uh, I wouldn't do that myself. I wouldn't risk putting the original. Oh, me either. I'd have taken a copy of it. I'd put a copy, a verified copy or something like that. I'd serve verified copies on the county. I'd serve them on the city, wherever, any place I was likely to be. It says, you know, you've got to fool around with this. Um, but it's a lot, you know, There's a, they make it difficult. I don't doubt you can get through this, but here's one other point. The same ideas that we are talking about in broad form here apply to the idea of you can buy a, a lower receiver for an AR-15 and you can machine it yourself. It's 80% complete. And if you do the last 20% machining, you have created the rifle. Yep. Lower receiver is deemed to be the rifle. Everything else is just an add-on. And if you created it, then you don't have to register it. That's true. Right? This is the whole idea again back in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a statement of legal title, and it always impresses me because it's the first statement in the Bible. This is a statement of law. It's not just it was a dark and windy night. <laughs> All right? This is important because it means God created the heaven and the earth and everything that he created by virtue of the act of creation, he owns. He can do anything he wants with it. That's the point. That's what makes him God. He created it. He owns it. Same principle we're talking about, which leads me, if you can create a lower receiver for an AR-15, for example, and they make them for... Colt, or excuse me, they make them for uh, 1911 45s. You can get the lower, lower oh, you can, end. Yeah, you, you can, can get the AK, can everything. I think you can yeah, yeah. get almost anything. Yeah, you probably can. Even if you can't, this day and age, it's possible to get the plans. And if you're, you know, if you're clever and industrious and you know a little bit how to deal with the metal or whatever, you can make this stuff yourself. What are the chances of making your own automobile? I'm not talking about building the engine. I'm not talking about, right. you know, 20% milling your own pistons and the rest of that sort of thing. But I'm saying that if you were to weld the frame and you were to buy an engine and buy the lights and buy the fenders and the rest of that sort of thing and assemble it yourself, right? and you can show that I created this, and you create documents that say, I created it within the borders of the state of Texas or within the borders of the state of Oregon or whatever. Now what? Well, <laughs> yeah, the, the and, and, and you know, you could actually use the receiver thing as evidence to say, look, uh, they go, well, you didn't make this engine. Well, you didn't make that. Well, no, I don't have to. I only have well, to make... To the assembly. It goes uh, to the assembly thing. Ford didn't make the lights. It didn't make the brakes. Right, right, exactly. I, I don't have to... And I only have to do 20% of it. Yeah. And you could point to the receiver thing and say, look, here's evidence. Yeah. Are you saying an automobile is more dangerous or somehow different than a, a rifle? 
You can't, you know, if if it counts 20% for a rifle, it counts for this, you know. And, yeah, there's a lot of things people can do. I don't know what they would do with the safety things and say, well, you know, you have to abide by, uh, you got to have airbags and you got to have Why do you have to have them? Huh? Why do you have to have them? Why do you have to have airbags? It goes to who owns the vehicle. Well, I that's think. true. We're going to decide what you need. You don't have to have them. The state said we have them. All of our cars have to have, all the cars we own have to have airbags. And safety. Well, that's true. And well, plus, I'm not against having those things, but I'm just saying. Well, well I am against airbags because uh, I don't, I, I think airbags create, you know, I, I, you know, if you like them, you like them. That's fine. But uh, I, I don't like airbags myself. But the thing is, now, airbags are not there to protect people you run into. They're not there to protect the general public. They're there to protect you. Yeah. The state is saying, look, you have to have the seatbelt, and you have to have the airbags, and you've got to have these things for your protection. It's really not your protection. It's to save the insurance companies from having to pay out big money. But the thing is, wait a minute. There's a maximum law that says I don't have to accept, you know, a benefit yep. for me. If it benefits me and I don't want it, I don't have to take it. Well, I don't have to be condemned. If you want to give me a benefit, that's one thing. But just because I receive something you regard as beneficial doesn't mean that I have to accept the status of a beneficiary in a trust. I can do that if I do it voluntarily, become beneficiary in your trust where you are handing out benefits. But I can also say, yeah, thanks a lot for the for the free lunch or whatever it is that you delivered, but I'm not your beneficiary. Right. I'm still acting at arm's length, and all I'm having is a, is a lunch that you paid for. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. But I'm not your beneficiary. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and there's a, you know. The problem and we, with all of this, the problem with all of this is that it's not enough that you know so much law that you can't, that it may be difficult for most people to figure it out. I mean, it can take years and years, if not decades, to put this stuff together where you think you know what it's, you think you might know what you're talking about. In addition to that, you've got to be a competent mechanic and welder to build your own automobile. Sure. All right? You've got to be a man for all seasons, a renaissance kind of guy who is not only able to read and understand the law, but read and understand automotive blueprints and electrical wiring and, you know, how to mount an engine and a bunch of other things like that. It is an extraordinarily difficult system to confront and and overcome. There are problems here where, yeah, and sometimes, oh, yeah. even if you're right, they still have brute force. And you say, we don't care what you say, Sonny. We're taking your car. How do you like that? Well, oh, that's oh. true. And, and you know, that's the whole thing, too. There's And there's more ways to go about this. You know, there's lots of different ways. The uh, manufacturer's certificate of origin. You know, I've studied into the, the driver license and the registration thing a lot. And, you know, the thing about it is, and you, and I don't have this in front of me, but I remember, you know, at one time I, I used to carry paperwork around with all this. Uh, but the license, the registration is all about, okay, commercial activity. But yeah. in order to be regulated, you have to be actually engaged in that activity. 
not just licensed, not just registered. All that means is that I can engage in it if I want, legally. But if you're not rolling down the road with a passenger in your car, well, officer, do you see a passenger? Then I'm not, I am not, I'm not engaged in that activity. It's like having a pilot's license. You know, if you're not flying the plane, you're not, you're not under the, the rules of flying a plane. If you're not engaged in the commercial activity that you're regulated for, that you're licensed for, that your car is registered to, to be engaged in, if you're not engaged in it, then, then that license is just a decoration until, oh, I see you have a passenger. And then you can say, well, this is not a passenger. They're not paying me. I'm not, you know, I'm not engaged in this. So, you know, there are other ways to go around this uh, to where you're like, you know, and then again, the necessity, the everything else. Look, I paid for this car. I always buy used cars. I, I don't even know what it is to buy a new car. Uh, but used cars, I always get a bill of sale. Okay. Says, you know, I bought this. Yes. I gave you whatever, and you gave me the car. It's we bill of sale. And when you say you gave him whatever, what do you mean by what did you give him? Well, back in the day, I used to just put the, you know, whatever the Federal Reserve amount was. Now, mm -hmm. I just like them to say paid in full. Yeah. You know, paid in full. And, uh, you know, that's it on the bill of sale. And DMV accepts that. You know, they don't, they don't require you to put a, a Federal Reserve amount on there. Just paid, in, you know, mainly the signature. Hey, look, here it is. Bill of sale. And bill of sale gets you to, you go down to DMV, that, you can transfer everything with a bill of sale. You know, and what do you to, mean you can transfer everything? If you want to take the, the certificate of title and say, look, I'd like to change the name on this certificate of title to me because I have a bill of sale here that says it's my car now, you can do that. All just yeah, I get the that, but the certificate of title is just a title in equity, in my opinion. Right. A certificate of title is simply a document that certifies that there is a title someplace. Right. But a certificate of title is not the title. Right. But my point is, the state recognizes the bill of sale to the point they will transfer what they believe is, okay, what you're saying is equitable ownership. Yeah, equitable interest, equitable title. You know, they will, they will recognize that bill of sale to do that. Yeah, I agree with that. But here's the point. From my perspective, I want to regain legal title. Equitable title, to me, is like it just puts you in, the, in a capacity similar to that of a, of, a, of a junior in high school borrowing his dad's car. Well, what it's I, not your car. What I right? personally you get to drive it, and the rest of the kids may say, oh, "Oh, that's Frank's car." No, it's not. It's Frank's dad's car. Frank may be driving it. He has a right, equitable right to possess it. But in relatively speaking, this is a hypothetical example. And by dad's right. rules, dad has legal title, right? And if push comes to shove, you got nothing if Dad says you're not driving a car. Guess what? You're not driving a car because well, he has real control. And if Dad says you'll be home by eleven, mm -hmm. that's exactly. like saying, well, you'll only go you're back to biking. You're back to riding your bike. You'll only go fifty-five miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing as saying you'll be home at eleven. 
You know, and that's what the state tells you. You'll drive 55 miles an hour. That's exactly right. And you have to go along with it because it's their car. Right. <laughs> it's technically legal. What they're doing here is one of these things that sits back and they're going to say, we didn't do anything illegal. No, no, no. We just defrauded you. You gave us stupid. the legal title to your vehicle. We're just controlling. We have an obligation to control our cars in a certain way. You know, you know, I, Al, but if you pulled the same scam on the little old lady down the street, you'd go to yeah, jail for it. Three to five. Okay. You know. Yeah. yeah. You know, so to say it's not fraud, no, it is fraud. It, you know, they're con men, and they have deceived everyone, and, you know, they're doing it. Because, you know, if I did the same exact thing, I went down a little old lady down the street and said, hey, Hey, what do you say uh, you sign over your house to me, and I'll cut your lawn every Tuesday for it? Well, you know what? Uh, then I decide, well, hey, I have the title now, and I'll tell her, well, you know, you can only use these rooms, and I move my friends into the other ones and rent them out. You know what? Somebody finds out I did that, I'm going to be in big trouble. Because I deceived that woman. Not if you're a congressman. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, if, I, if I'm if i guilty of fraud, so are they. And, you know, that that's the way I look at it. And I know they don't view no, it. No, I know. But, but it's one of those things. They're going to argue that it's not fraud if you stepped into it voluntarily. You are presumed to know what you're doing. Ignorance is no excuse in the eyes of the law, yada, yada. Ah, but wait a minute. Anytime there's an agreement made, there's got to be full disclosure. When did that happen? Not true. Not true. Anytime there's a contract made, there has to be full disclosure. There doesn't have to be full disclosure in a trust relationship. Okay. I can set up a trust with with my two-year-old grandchild. All right, I can name him. He doesn't know what's going on. I don't have to tell him anything. I just name him beneficiary, and he will inherit <laughs> all five hundred dollars of my my <laughs> fortune when I when I expire. <laughs> but nevertheless, you yeah, know. But it, it, but it, actually, Al, it's more like saying he will inherit your you know fifty trillion dollars of debt when you expire. Well, that too. You know, <laughs> this is what they're actually doing. Yeah. Well, I get that, but still, the way they're set up, there doesn't have to be full disclosure unless the parties ask for it. No, I honestly, I really think you're onto something with the uh, whole trust relationship thing because, you know, that really has bothered me for decades. About, you know, everybody says it's a contract, it's an agreement, it's yeah. but it's like, well, wait a minute now, you know, you got to have meeting of the minds, you got to have full disclosure, with and we contract. don't get any of that. With a contract. You don't no. get that with a trust. No. You don't get that when you sign a bank signature card. Where's the contract? Right. Contract requires meeting of the minds. It requires a minimum of two parties, which means you need two signatures. If you're the only one signing the document, you've just made a pledge. You haven't made a contract. You've made a pledge. You've essentially promised to do something. You've incurred a debt voluntarily on your own, but you're not in a contract, and they didn't have to disclose anything to you. If you're dumb enough to sign a one-party document, <laughs> you know, and everybody does. Mortgages, for example, one signature on the mortgage, yours. One signature on the note. Yeah. How many signatures are on your driver's license? Is that a contract? There's no second signature there. There's no representative of the state that co-signed your driver's license. 
These are these are trust documents or and or pledges, and I don't know that I can tell you the difference between them, but I know if I know it's not a contract because there's got to be two signatures. Well, and that's the thing. You see, that's the important thing. Now, because I just thought, well, you know, the state sometimes likes to say, well, you know, the seal of the state is like the signature of the state, and it's like, yeah, uh-huh. okay, all right. Okay, fine. Then where was full disclosure? Where was the meeting of the minds? Where was all these things that have to be then if that is going to be your signature and you are going to claim this is some kind of contract, then it's an unconscionable contract. And if you get caught, and if you get caught, it's not an unconscionable, you know, if you get caught and they say, well, he was speeding, he didn't have his seatbelt fastened or whatever, whose law are they trying you under? They're trying you under your law. You're the dummy who signed the document all by yourself. You're the one that made the pledge. I agree to be subject to the laws of the land or the rules of the road. You did that. Mm -hmm. They're just holding you to your voluntary agreement. Now, Now, here's here's the twist. It's true in a bunch of cases. See, now, here's the twist that I was... was you know, when I, you know, towards the end of the 11 years of doing this, uh, what, where I was at with it was, okay, yeah, I did agree to do all those things while I'm engaged in the regulated activity. Yep. But I'm not engaged in that. Yep. So I'm not subject to that unless I, think, I am. I think it's a good argument. I think it's a good argument if you can make it proper. Well, and it's backed up by law. See, that's the whole thing. This is not this is not just me thinking this up, thinking yeah. this is, sounds good. I found this in the law that, no, you have to be engaged in a yep. regulated activity before mm-hmm. you're subject to it. And how many years did you study the law before you found that? Well, like I said, it was towards the end of 11 years of driving without oh. a license, so about probably nine before yeah. I found that. Yeah. I mean, you got to do some digging for a long time, not simply to find things, but to understand them. And then you got it. Then, then you got to wait, and and you know you hope it never happens, but you you know when it does happen, you got to deal with it, and you inevitably always learn a lot from when you get pulled over and go, okay, time to put some of this stuff to the test. <laughs> Today we're going to practice our first aid. <laughs> We we have we have a crash dummy here. That would be me, and I'm going to learn how to bandage my own head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of it. You are that is that's a good analogy because that's your court dummy. You go to court. I understand. (laughs) I have thought for a long time you should go to court. You know, if you're going to court, get one of those helmets that they have for the crash dummies and the automobiles where they've got the circle on the side that's divided into four quadrants, <laughs> yeah. white helmets and the black and white on that, so they can <laughs> let them know, here we go, baby. Yeah, got a crash and that dummy is coming to it. We have a crash dummy entering the courtroom. Because that's the thing, and you never know, because you go, well, all right, I think this is good, and then you find out, well, this worked and that didn't work so well. It's true. And then when you find something that kind of works, you you go, well, I need to dig in that direction a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like mining for gold or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you find a little vein, and you go, well, I'm I'm going to dig that that direction because I think the vein's going there. You know, and that and that's what you do, and you just 
you know, sometimes you find nothing, and other times you go, whoa, I think I'm onto something here. And and that's where I was at, at the end there. I was like, I was pretty confident that, no, I think I can make the argument about, yeah, yeah okay, I, I, I'm legally allowed to engage in commerce on the road. Well, there's another thing also. What you're saying is that the agreement only applies when you're engaged in that particular kind of activity. Because that's the activity you're on the right track on it. But here's the other thing. If you're the only one who signed a document, what does the document mean? It means whatever you say it means. Yeah, well, yeah. I signed the document. There is no meeting of the minds. There is no agreement. It means what I say it means. And I guarantee you, you give me a document, well, you signed that document, we're going to hold Oh, yeah? Well, let's go through the document. I happen to have a legal dictionary here. And let's take each one of the words that's in the document, and it's probably got three, four, five different definitions. And I'm going to guarantee you that what I meant is not what you think I meant. Yep. I can take that document apart and make you wish you had never gone to law school. Oh, there, there you are with those word games again. That's right, but that <laughs> works. That's it's ibbity bobbity boo, abracadabra. Yep. That's what this is. It's almost a kind of sorcery. Word art. Yep. Yes. It, yeah. is, it really is, and uh, yeah, it is. And most people are ensnared. Again, said it a bunch of times, but you think you are confronting a system that is scary because you could be caught by people with guns and clubs and tasers and pepper spray and the rest of this sort of thing. That's not what catches you. You are caught with words. That's what catches you. Forget the guns and the clubs. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, you know, you can't Unless just you're in Chicago. write them off. But they are not, they are implements, but they're not the primary force. You are trapped. You are in bondage to words. And if you can master words, you can get out of this deal. Well, that's if true. If you can master Kung Fu, maybe you can get away from the cops, at least for a while, but I don't think that's going to last for long. Well, and, and most people, yeah, there's people out there that get robbed and mugged in cities and wherever, but most people, a lot more people, end up in front of a judge going to jail sure. than they do mugged. You know, uh, because, hey, look at how many people are on probation in this country. Yeah. I mean, good golly. It's, in, it's insane. I mean, when you really look at the numbers, I mean, everybody looks at, well, gosh, look at how many people we got in prison. That's horrible. That's terrible. That's, you know, almost 3 million people. That's way too much. Well, yeah, I agree that's way too much. But then when you look at the probation numbers, you know, between parole and probation, uh, it's it's pure insanity. I mean, because probation, you are basically in custody. They call it you're in custody. They consider you in custody when you're on probation. You know, one of the interesting things about that is when they talk about custody, that's very close to talking about the idea of property. It is. The custodian takes care of the, handles the property in a sense. And when you are in prop, when you are in custody, I wonder what the legal, what the real legal description there really is. I don't know, but I wonder if you dug down deep enough, does custody indicate you are in the status of something like a you're the res, you're a piece, you're an item of property rather than a man or woman? 
And I, I don't know. I, I, think, I wouldn't be surprised, but I have no evidence. Well, I know one thing. I don't know to what extent or what the proper term would be, but I know you have a diminished liberty. Oh, yeah. You know, If you have any liberty at all. So there's something going on. Do you have any liberty? You know, no. people talk about freedom all the time. We talk about, oh, I want to be free, I want to be free. Ah, that's very nice. But where does freedom come from? Liberty. Um, liberty clearly comes from God. Mm-hmm. It, it is declared in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. They flow from our Creator, from God. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty flows from God. Preamble of the Constitution says the same thing. Uh, words to that effect, they refer to the blessing of liberty. Right. To secure the blessing, not the benefit Right. Right? I I think there's an overlap between freedom and liberty. I don't think the terms are absolutely mutually exclusive, but liberty is clearly from God. Freedom is typically you free the slaves. Man frees the slaves. I think freedom flows from mankind and liberty flows from God and which puts us into, you know, the system we have today that with this this commercial system. We're well, kind of like you know, kind of like a difference between civil rights and uh, unalienable rights from yeah. God. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. they're all good, but one and is better that, than the other. The the rights that flow from mankind. These rights are the, what they give. What man gives, man can take away. Mm-hmm. Just as what God gives, God can take away. But if God's given me some rights. Mankind can't deprive me of the rights I've received from God. That's the point. All right, man can, mankind can deprive me of the rights I've received from other men. That can happen. Mm-hmm. They can take away my civil rights. They can't take away my unalienable rights. And I think that this is the focus of the war that's been going on since this country began. Between the people who advocated that our rights flow from God, and the people say we can't afford that. It makes it impossible to rule people whose rights flow from God. We can't do that. That makes them sovereigns. It's a crazy idea. Can't have it. So we've got to have something else. Instead of having men endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, we've got to have persons who get civil rights. What's funny, though, you know, is that for the short period of time in this country where people did have liberty and they were individual sovereigns with no subjects... Things worked real well. This yeah, country no. was very prosperous. So, you know, you got to wonder, well, who exactly did this not work for? You who know, do you suppose there were some people who want to live off the sweat of another man's brow. Yeah, there they are. Want, and they believe in slavery. They believe in bondage, and they believe. Why don't you go to work, Frank, and you can support me? Well, and what we, I think they we, I, we are masters of words, and we can put you in a position, Frank, where you think you're free, but you don't get it. Well, what I think they really believe, and and their laws evidence it, they believe we are animals, yeah. and they are somehow not, or they're better I don't animals. Think they deny that they're animals, but what they do, if we are men and women made in God's image, you know, endowed, and endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights as per the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. The third sentence, that tells us where we get our fundamental rights. The third sentence of the Declaration tells us the fundamental purpose 
of the governments that were created under the Declaration of Independence. And there were state governments. It wasn't the federal government, state governments. And it says that to secure these rights, and by these rights they are referring to the unalienable rights God given in the immediate, in the preceding sentence. This was the, this was the purpose of government as envisioned by the founding fathers. I will secure that man's God-given unalienable rights, even if he's too dumb to understand how to spell God. He is still entitled to these rights. But once we get away from, and it is the business of government, to secure those rights, even to the unborn. They've already been created. They have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there, there isn't going to be an abortion. The government would be obligated to protect the unborn from abortion under the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but what government does is say, well, wait. Let's turn this world over to the really smart people, lawyers or bankers and judges. And we will write all these complex words and will claim to do it for the sake of people's freedom and prosperity and much other stuff. But and the children. Us in charge, the whole thing. And if these persons no longer have access to their God-given unalienable rights, then we can rule them. It's like, it's like Aldous Huxley. No, it wasn't Huxley. Who was it? Who wrote Animal, Animal Farm? George oh. Orwell? Uh, George Orwell. Yeah, I think so. And part of they had they had their list of they had their ten commandments or whatever it was that they originally posted and they said all animals are created equal. And then they amended it later on and the pigs came in, but some animals are more equal. Yeah. Well the animals that are more equal were the ones who were able to say, Okay, we're all animals. And none of us have any God given unalienable rights, but we know how to write. Yep. We know how to read. We there know how pigs. to speak. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm making that very clear or not, but this is the way the system works. They, the way the system functions is the people in positions of power are admitting that they are animals. But they're essentially saying, but we are predators and you are prey. You understand? Yeah. Why? Because you are not made in God's image. You are not endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights, and well, therefore... And we can we can have you for dinner the same way we would eat a chicken or a lamb or uh you know well and that's why it's important to make it clear you know when you when necessary or whenever you feel feel it's necessary to make it clear that no I'm a man created in God's image and you do it before every show yep. and you have it on your email yep. and you know and, and to, to make it's certainly when you're dealing with government you've got to make this statement somewhere in writing on the record and make it very clear that, look, I'm, hey, I'm the guy in Genesis there. I'm a yeah, that's created me. in God's image. Huh? Oh, and by the way, and I, I have dominion. up my right to claim that principle from my faith. And I have dominion over yep. the animals. That's right. So I can be an animal. Back down, judge. You know, uh, <laughs> because, you know, if you're right, and they are admitting they are animals, they're just predator animals, then, oh, okay, that's fine, but I have dominion over even the predator animals. Uh -huh. And, you know, th hey, you got to have faith, man. You know, that <laughs> that's one thing it comes to, because they're scary. I mean, predators are scary. 
Oh, I agree. But if you've got dominion over them, you either do or you don't. And God God says you do, so you got to have faith that you do. You know, one of the other interesting things that just now crosses my mind, if you read Genesis 9, chapter 9 in Genesis, uh, it includes the, the Noahide blessings where God, the Noah, came out of the ark. Mm-hmm. And among other things, God said, now I'm going to put the fear of man in all of the animals. All right? Now, this is interesting to me, because some people scare animals. And a lot of people say, oh, I wouldn't trust somebody who doesn't, that the dog doesn't like him. <laughs> if you believe what it says at 9-6, the dog may not like him because he's had, he has the fear right. of a man or woman made in God's image. That's, a, that's not God talking, that's me. Mm-hmm. You know, but it may also be. This same analogy can be extended to the judges and the cops and lawyers and the rest of it. In theory, if you can prove to these self-admitted animals that you are man-made in God's image, it might strike a certain amount of fear in their hearts. Well, they don't want to mess with that. They know at least at least that's my interpretation. I think you're right. I honestly think you're right. And and. And not so much because I've ever experienced, you know, a judge just shaking in his boots at my sight, but the thing is, the other side of it is that when they don't see the fear in you of them, they are worried. Yep. They are visibly uncomfortable Uh when you're not afraid of them. They feed on your fear. They really do. So I figure, well, you know, hey, all things being balanced and stuff, um, I think you're probably right about the whole thing. And if they admit they're animals, which they do, you know, they believe in evolution, they believe in all this, and, you know, they're obviously acting as predators, uh, then it all makes sense. I mean, and that's really the thing, is that, it okay, to to some people it might sound like crazy talk, but really it it all makes sense. Yeah, it does after you've after you've tried to make sense of it for the last <laughs> yeah. fifteen or twenty years. The bug God is all this time. Even I thought I was crazy. Yeah. Now, now I'm beginning to find out. No, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Who was more surprised than me when I found out maybe I wasn't crazy? You what know? do you mean I'm not the crazy one? Yeah, yeah. It's true. But you know, this is uh, and the animal thing. It was a great. You know, uh, a great find on your part, and and that you wrote a lot about it, and you've got a lot of information on your blog about it. And you know, I encourage people to go read that because, you know, if you're just hearing this, and I don't care if you've heard it three or four or five times, or every time you know Al's ever mentioned it or I've ever mentioned it, and you've never gone and looked up this stuff and read it, you know, you can say, well, I believe Frank and Al, you know, because why would they lie? Well, that's nice, but. You really should go read it so yep. you know for yourself. You look at it. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe Al. Go uh-huh. look at it. It's written in a law. I mean, you know, they, they say it straight out. And you, you know what else? <clears throat> Texas has changed the law. Uh-huh. The Texas definition of, of, of drugs has been changed to remove the man or other animals phrase. Oh. And that happened about 2013. I just kind of stumbled onto it in the last, I don't know, eight months ago, something like that. 
and I happened to check. And I can't find out exactly when they did it, but they did it about 2013, as near as I can see. And they actually non-suited the case. I'm trying to remember. Non-case was non-suited, finally non-suited in 2013, December of 2013, if I recall correctly. Um, I suspect, I don't know it to be true, but I suspect that they have changed the law, perhaps. You know, I don't know. It's flattering myself, but I think they may have changed the law because of what I'd, what I'd turned up. And somebody said, look, we've got to do something about this. And they probably didn't even know what was going on. They said, we can't treat these people. Some of them may have said, we can't treat these people like animals, you know, because they've, they've apparently figured out. And others are saying, can't treat them as animals because it's wrong. Uh, hard to say, but they have changed the state law. They haven't changed federal law on it yet, but they wow. have changed state. But the fact remains... You know, even I'm going to have to look at that law and make sure I can argue my way through it again. I don't doubt that I can, but they've removed the man or other animal, the or other animals phrase has been removed, and now it leaves open. Well, what kind of man are you talking about? Sure. Are you talking about a man made in the image of God, or are you talking about an animal man? of the sort that you find in evolution. The question still remains, but the answer is no longer explicit in the written well, law. Well, it's like At saying United best. States, you know, yeah, okay, exactly. fine, what, which one? You know, what are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. You know, great, man, all right, man, well, we know, hey, uh, what's his name, uh, you know, the guy with the monkey theory, he called man, man, mm-hmm. but he says, hey, you're from monkeys. Yep. Darwin, and, yeah, and Darwin still called call people, people man. Human beings. Yeah, well, yeah. And you look at the definition of human beings, and it turns out it means a, uh, an animal. Yeah, monster uh, is one definition that I found. One of them. Because I didn't yeah. believe that. You know, somebody told me, uh, and that's one of those things that I, I was like, ah, come on. Yeah. You know, and, no. and, you know, monster, really, come on. And it was obscure, but it was in a, in a, in a legal dictionary, and it was, and I saw it. And I, I made a, you know, back before the internet and all that, you know, where you had to take the book and throw it on the Xerox and make a copy, and mm-hmm. I did that. And, uh, Hard to believe. What a primitive technology, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Although I had, I had, I had some interesting, uh, interesting times at the Xerox machine at the law library, you know, because I'd sit there with lots and lots of books that I was making copies of stuff, and, you know, uh, you're sitting there basically hogging the machine, Yep. And a lawyer will come in, and he'll only want to make a couple of copies of something, and, and it's like, he'll ask you, you know, well, you know, can I just make a copy here? To, to, okay, There's who you know, but that's an opportunity to talk to him. And I always took the opportunity to talk to these guys, and, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you know, when, when, when some people say, oh, man, lawyers are idiots, you know, they may just say that because it's disparaging and they don't like them, but... There are some real idiots out there practicing law. I mean, really, probably technically idiots. Well, that's uh, probably true. You know what the average IQ is for lawyers? No idea. 105. Five points above average. Well, it's five points too high to be a cop. Yeah, but just the same. <laughs> it'll, it doesn't. It suggests that if someone was highly motivated with an IQ of 85 or 90, they still get through law school. Oh, sure. And you know, I don't they, think all, all that highly motivated. But they, they can get through. 
Yeah, I don't think you'd have to be all that motivated. You'd probably get through. Well, it's hard to say. Maybe do your it's homework. Say, you know, there's there's a lot of work involved. But you know the problem with law school. You may remember the Paper Chase. It was yes. a movie, and later on a uh, a TV series. Yeah, I, I watched John several Husband. episodes of that. that. Yeah, I, I actually watched several episodes of that before I became so disgusted with lawyers that I can't even watch. You know. Mm-hmm. I can barely watch old Perry Mason's now. Well, I like Perry Mason. I still like it uh, because it's more of a detective film than. It's more like you, Alice in Wonderland. They actually do see some things in Perry Mason <laughs> that actually do give you some legal insight. It's true. It's true. It is true that those old ones are are great. You know, I saw this is way off. This is just out of nowhere, but it's it has to do with old TV shows or movies about legal proceedings that they had mm-hmm. i watched this movie and and i actually cut this clip out and saved it and i have it somewhere on some computer somewhere where and this is an old black and white movie and it's a divorce case man and woman getting divorced in court and the judge tells them both because they're arguing over something about the kid and the judge tells them listen the court is now in charge of that kid. Yep. And he used other words like the court owns that kid or the court that kid is ours now. Yep. And you know, this is old. This is back in the early fifties. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, even back then, you know, I mean they were oh, wow. You know, but that was back when divorce was like, you know, not that common and they were probably trying to say, hey, you look, see how bad it is? State will take your kid. This, you know, it's real bad. You don't want to get divorced. Now, geez, I don't know. I don't know if you, I don't know if you don't sign away your kid the minute you either get your <laughs> your marriage license or the birth certificate or what. I agree with you. I agree. We've heard people that the governor of the state came after them to take their kids and Heard of people, heard of stories that I believe to be true. It's only one or two instances, comes out of the 90s. But the state had come in and they, the family had half a dozen kids, but they didn't have a birth certificate for one of the kids. Cops didn't touch them. That one stayed home. Wow. They took the other five, but not the one that didn't have a birth certificate. Huh? I, can, I believe that, too. I do. I believe that. And It brings up a, a subject that I'm for an article I'm starting to work on. We can talk about it a little bit. We talk about abortion. And the reason you can abort the unborn, the primary reason is because the 14th Amendment says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Ultimately, it means that your civil rights attach after you've been born. And because you don't have any civil right to life while you are unborn, they can scoop you out of your mom's womb and chop you up into chunks and throw you in the waste paper basket. Oh, no, they sell you now. Well, it's, it, we, I agree. It's, it's not just in a waste paper basket anymore. Now they've, they're trying to extract the last dime out of the deal. Yeah. But they, but the, but the abortion ultimately depends on you being unborn under the Fourteenth Amendment. All right. 
Declaration of Independence, however, says all persons, all it's, it's all men are created equal, created equal, and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And it necessarily follows that the endowment does not attach at the moment of your birth; it attaches at the moment of your creation. God gave you your God-given unalienable rights. They are as much a part of you as the color of your eyes. All right. It's part of your genetics, practically. And it might be part of your genetics from that perspective. Now, what I'm getting to is this. Birth certificates are issued after the child has been fully removed from his mother's womb. Uh, and I don't mean instantly, but that's the idea. You won't get the birth certificate until the child is fully removed from them. Uh, and after that birth certificate is issued, in theory... Not not just after the birth certificate isn't the source of the law. The birth is the source of the civil rights. The birth certificate merely certifies that the birth took place. All right, it's not the source, but it's the evidence of those rights. What was the child before it was born? Hmm. It wasn't a Fourteenth Amendment citizen. No. That's for sure. But the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That unborn child has been created no later than the moment of its conception. All right? Nine months before it was born, and I've said this a number of times, Jeremiah, there's a verse in Jeremiah where God's talking to Jeremiah, and he said, I knew you before you were even in your mother's womb which implies that we were all created before we were even, uh, before our conception. We were already created before our earthly conception. But the point is, under the Declaration of Independence, the principles we find there, that unborn child, by virtue of having been created, is endowed by his creator with certain unalienable rights, including the right to life, which means abortion is illegal under the Declaration of Independence. And on top of that, if my notions about sovereignty are correct, and it's true that sovereignty flows from God, it's, an ex, it's a term that uh, describes people who receive their rights from God, then what is that little unborn baby? Is he a sovereign? Does he have rights, unalienable rights that flow from God? And if so, do the people who abort them, is this, are they aborting a sovereign? I mean, they, they want to try to convince us that the unborn child, in some instances, they'll say it's just a zygote or whatever. It's an undifferentiated mass of protoplasm. And even when the child gets closer and closer to being old enough to be born, they'll try to say, oh, you know, this isn't really a baby, it's not really a child, and blah, blah, blah. But it is under the Declaration of Independence, which is still part of the organic law of the United States of America. Well, and if the baby was created before it was ever conceived, then we're talking about its soul. Well, I agree. And that exists and then you know now we're looking at conceived and now Ooh, you know murder. yeah i think i think it is probably a sovereign and uh you know so what i'm wondering is this when it comes to birth certificates 
If you carry that state-issued birth certificate around, is that the evidence? I mean, do you keep it in your safety deposit box or under the bed or wherever you keep it? Is that evidence that you are not a man made in God's image? That you are that you didn't acquire any rights until you were born? Is that birth certificate, which you voluntarily use and you're carrying around, you're using it to apply for your passport or whatever else, is that evidence that you're not a man made in God's image? Not endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights, and therefore they don't have to respect you on that basis. They don't have an obligation to secure your rights. How do we know? you got a birth certificate, don't you? Well, I think probably it's at least evidence that you're a 14th Amendment citizen. I think it is, too. But that's all. See, what I'm looking at, I'm thinking, I'm I'm exploring the hypothesis that the moment the child is born, the birth certificate is evidence of a degradation of the child's rights. We're going to treat that child with this name under the declara- under the under the birth certificate, and the birth certificate is evidence that he was born. He didn't acquire any rights until after he was born. And therefore, maybe it doesn't. He doesn't have a claim on the Declaration of Independence or the unalienable rights, or didn't receive any rights from God. Not a sovereign. I don't know if I'm making that very clear because it's an idea. I'm well, still... it's a little confusing because of the fact that you know, obviously, a baby when a birth certificate is issued has no say in the matter, and it's like, well, wait a minute. So you're what? Yeah, am I being it might be voluntarily. Am I being sold into slavery before I'm even of the age of consent? I mean, I think it's even worse than slavery. You're being sold into the wonderful, wide world of animals. I mean, it's one thing to take a man made in God's image and and put him into slavery. He's still a man made in God's image. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to say, no, you're not made in God's image. You're just an animal. Now, and now you're not in slavery. You're just like uh, you know, you're like a pet dog or a pet cat or maybe a cow out in the, uh, you know, you know, a cow out in the barn. Well, but now let's look at it from the point of view of the you know driver license and everything else. It's like, well, okay, so we have the Fourteenth Amendment. We have okay, so you're a Fourteenth Amendment, basically an animal. Mm-hmm. And given, you know, some civil rights, and uh, you know, okay, you can't do cruelty to animals, right? You know, you go to jail for that now, right? Uh, you can go to prison for killing a police dog, murder. Yeah, I know. You know, so you know, so you're a Fourteenth Amendment uh, citizen, and you got some. Uh, now, what can you like with the driver license? Well, I'm, you know, hey, I can engage in commerce on the road if I choose to. But if I'm not engaged in it, you know, meaning just because you got a birth certificate. Okay, okay, fine. It was issued to me, and there's one on file, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can write all the letters I want, like I did to Social Security. Get my name off of there. Remove me from your filing system. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know how many letters I wrote to you know, for Social mm-hmm. Security demanding they, they take me off of their rolls, and they never will. Yeah, no. They're not going to do it. Why not? It's their number. It's their system. It's their and thing. And it might not even be you that yeah. you're talking about. I don't think it is. Yeah, I you may the, only be one of the representatives for it with the all uppercase name. I think what they've done is they've created something akin to a corporation. 
It could be an animal. I mean, okay, so we're going to call you an animal, but we've incorporated you, so we can do business with you. Yeah. Because I don't think they can do business with us as sovereigns. I don't think they. I don't think they can. I think. I think you might be correct about that. They can't do business with us unless we volunteer in. Okay, right. they can't. But if we're just animals, they can kick us around. Once you voluntarily agreed to play cow on the pastures uh, out in the farmer's uh, barn, don't be surprised if you get kicked, mm-hmm. milked, or chopped up into steaks. Oh, you volunteered. I mean, this is the same thing. You've probably heard this. It was kind of a joke. I think it might have been in oh, so Zanichin's Gulag Archipelago. The Solzhenitsyn, for those who don't know, is a Russian writer who was caught in the, in the, in the, in the Russian concentration camps for a number of years after World War II. And what was I going to say about Oh, There were instances when people were condemned by the courts to die, and they would go out and get them lined up. They'd say, okay, sign here. And they would dutifully sign. What was it? A warrant for their death. <laughs> they were signing their own death warrants, and they didn't understand what they were doing. They were they were being cooperative up to the point of dying, and say, "Okay, you can shoot me." And the people who were in charge of this just laughed. They thought it was a big joke. Well, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. It kind we're of is the system where, when you especially, you know, it's maybe one of the most it's one of the most important subjects that you could master, perhaps, is the, sig- is the significance of a disclaimer attached to your signature. Everybody just signs their name. Sign here. Okay? And you sign your name. I can't remember the proper term for that. It's something like general acknowledgement. All right? But when you just sign your name, Alfred Adams, we just sign that. You have agreed to everything that's there or implied in the document you signed. But if you go ahead and qualify your signature and say at arm's length, for example, just this disclaimer that I use on a regular basis, it means I'm not acting as a beneficiary. I'm not acting even as a fiduciary. I'm If this is a contract, fine, you can take me to a court of law, but not equity. I'm not in equity. I don't think they can even function at law anymore. I don't know if they can. I don't know how to get into a court of law with absolute certainty. Not me I, either. I know how to stay out of them, but I don't know how to get into them. Now, let me ask you something, and and I don't know if you know, and I don't know the answer. That's why I'm asking, but now... You can, if you don't, if you are illiterate and you can't write, it's, it's been long-standing, you can just put an X by your name, yep. and that counts as your signature. Yep. Now, what if I was to write, okay, you know, sign this, all right, all rights reserved, or at arm's length. Not my name, nothing, just that. And they go, well, this isn't your name. No, that's my signature. I agree. If I can put an X, why can't I put that? I agree with you. I think it's a good point. I can tell you, you know, there's another side, another variation on the same idea. They're going to look at a document, your bank signature card, for example. Did you sign? Is that your signature? And everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's my signature. Is this your signature on the driver's license? Oh, yeah, that's my signature. 
you know. What if you said, no, that's not my signature. I sign, when I sign my name, I, and when I voluntarily sign my name, I always sign at arm's length above my signature, and they wouldn't allow me to do that. Yeah, and, they, the and driver's they, they will not. They won't. That's right. So is it your signature or is it not your signature? Nope. I didn't sign that. It's not voluntary. That's not my signature. My signature includes at arm's length. This is not my signature. Yes, you know, I'm the one who wrote it, but it's not my signature. My signature includes that phrase. Yeah, because, and it's, uh, and it's also a, a long-standing maxim at law. Any act done by me not voluntarily is not my act. Yeah, I understand. But only if you bring it up and you make that issue at, an, at the appropriate time. So I didn't voluntarily do that. I had to do it to get the license in order to go out and buy myself a brand-new, shiny-new Tesla. Yeah, so people, and, you know, well, so the gang down there doesn't shoot me full of holes as I go by, you know, because if I'm not, you know, I don't have this, these things, then they're going to be trouble. And they could be violent. They carry guns, you know. Yeah, I know. You know, so I had to do it. This wasn't mm -hmm. voluntary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you could make a real good case for not voluntary. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I guess you mentioned commerce. Mm -hmm. And being caught in this commerce, and we, you've, I would, I assume you've seen references to claims that all crimes are now commercial. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, I was just looking, just last week, in uh, the U.S. Code, I forget where it was, but I was looking at commercial crimes, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, gosh, kidnapping, this, that, and the other thing. There's, there's lots of commercial crimes, and then there's something odd at the bottom. <laughs> drug addiction, no, they don't say possession. They say addiction. drug addiction to narcotics or the production of marijuana will be considered as a commercial crime. Now, that's interesting. Yeah, because they're not, they admit by that, the way they write it, they admit it, it's not really a commercial crime. But we're going to treat it as a commercial crime. And, and you know, you got, I, I wonder why. I wonder what's the... And why, you know, why the... Why does it nece necessary? And I believe... You see, I believe that all federal crimes... Because I don't think they're... I don't think they really... And I don't want to say all, but I'd say 95% of the federal crimes are unconstitutional and they got no... They got no basis in jurisdiction. I disagree. Well, okay, I think maybe they're all somewhere. constitutional within the territories of Washington D.C., but they're not necessarily constitutional within the states of the union. Where are you? That's they have limited powers under Article One within the states of the union. They have unlimited powers in the territories under Article Four, Section Three, Clause Two. See, I don't think they have. I don't think they have. On I think they have unlimited powers to regulate commerce. And I think that's why they make such a big deal about the Commerce Clause and they abuse it so much. And then they make all these things that really, y you look at them and you go, wait a minute, murder is not a commercial crime. Unless, you know, okay, you hire a hitman, sure, all right, maybe that's a commercial crime. But most murder are crimes of passion. That's not a, that's not a commercial crime, yet they consider it a commercial crime. And and what addiction to narcotics? Well, I suppose you know the the act of buying narcotics could be a commercial crime, but they don't say that. They say addiction. 
Yeah. How can that possibly be? And I and it isn't. But they're going to. Well, they're admitting. They're stuff. implicitly admitting that it's not a commercial crime, but it will be considered as such. Who will consider it <laughs> yeah. to be a commercial crime? Yeah. And if it's not a commercial, no, who will? Who will? Who's going to consider it well, to be federal a federal court? Well, the courts are, the cops are, yeah. the government is going to consider it. Under what circumstances would they not consider it to be a commercial crime? If the stoner who is so stoned on marijuana or addicted or whatever, he says, hey, I am not committing a commercial crime. This is, I do not agree that this is commercial, that my addiction is commercial. If the if the <laughs> yeah. defendant in the situation said, uh-uh, I think when they say considered, I'd say I would guess. We're presuming. It will be considered it was, exactly, it's a presumption. Right. The rest yeah. of them, they're saying this by law, but these are presumed, which means you could defeat the presumption right. if you cared to. And, you know, they're probably doing it by, by presuming and saying, well, if you're addicted to narcotics, you probably purchased those narcotics. And that's a commercial crime. So we're just going to presume that you did that if you're addicted. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, but there's another thing. If you're addicted, that's a medical condition. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, and it may be the way they're getting around the fact, look, the poor slob is addicted to these damn drugs. He doesn't have a choice. There is no intent. He is addicted. Right. Okay? And no longer subject. His intent is irrelevant. He has to have it, or, you know, who knows what will happen. But if once you admit he's addicted, he's no longer in control. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting discovery. But let me read a little bit out of uh, John. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found the temple, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he made up any, and when he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. He's saying, Do not make my father's house a a house of commerce. Right. Right? Now, we have we've played with that the distinction between the United States of America and the United States. I strongly suspect the United States of America, the union, the perpetual union and the states that compose that union. I think those are by are inherently non-commercial. Commerce may take place there, but the states, but the states of the union are not based on the presumption that everything is commercial. But I think the alternative states that we suspect are there, these territorial states, states of the United States rather than states of the United States of America, states of the United States, territories, administrative districts, I think they're all commercial. And I think in the house of commerce, we're not going to find reference to the God-given unalienable rights. I think in my father's house, and I'm just playing with this idea. I'm not saying this is God. I didn't hear God say this. I'm just exploring the idea myself. I'm saying that the United States of America, in the context of John 2.13 through 2.16, actually, is what I have here. 
in the context of the United States of America, I think it's a non-commercial place. I think it's a place where these godly rights and recognition of God is take is is fundamental, primary. Well, if you get off into the United States, I think it's the House of Commerce. I think you're right, and I've had this suspicion for a while about a, a couple of words, and uh, and I have no proof whatsoever, and it is just a suspicion at this point. But I'll run it by you. What do you think? Because I've been thinking that commerce applies to corporations and business and free enterprise. And these other words apply to the people. Well, what do you mean by these? Oh, you're saying that commerce alone applies to corporations? I, I believe so. I believe, like I believe commerce. I believe commerce is a... At its at its root, a corporate word, a a word, a, a way of doing business that corporations conduct. Whereas business, and you know companies, and uh, you know individual well people do free enterprise and they do business amongst each other and uh, you know things like that. They people okay think back. People didn't say, well. I'm going to go down to Joe's coffee shop and do some commerce. They would say, I'm going to go down there and do some business. <laughs> well, you know, they might say, I'm going to go down there and do some intercourse also. <laughs> but, see, the words change over time, and what they once meant by intercourse and what it is commonly understood to be today. <laughs> well, why, be why I think this way is because commerce is so widely used by the government as in regulation. They regulate commerce to death. And, oh, I agree with you. And the thing is, they also seem to be wanting to create... What kind of commerce do they rec do they do they regulate? Well, it depends. I mean, you're talking about the the individual. I'm talking or about the... interstate commerce. Okay, yeah, the federal That's government. That's where they claim to find their authority in mm -hmm. interstate commerce. Right. So far as I know, the word interstate does not appear in the Constitution. I don't think it does. And Article One, Section Eight, Clause Three says it's talking about the limited powers of government. And it says to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. There's nothing in there about interstate commerce. Nope. The only thing they refer to is among the several states, meaning the several states of the Union, styled the United States of America. When government is talking about interstate commerce, I believe they're talking about territorial commerce. They're talking, they said their term interstate, I think, corresponds to doing business within the territories, within the administrative district, within the states of the United States, within Washington, with Washington, D.C., for example. Within the corporate entity. Not within the states of the Union. Well, and within the corporate entity, because, I mean, the United States was incorporated in, what, 1871? Every state, well, every, okay, not every state of the Union, but every state of, you know, the ones that call themselves this state and all that, they're all incorporated. You know, the cities are incorporated. These are all corporations. What's the fundamental signal to indicate that you're engaged in interstate commerce within, in this state, in this state, in the administrative district, in the territory of the United States? What's the fundamental signal? That you're engaged in interstate commerce? Yes. 
an interstate meaning between these administrative districts and or territories. Well, I would figure you'd have to cross the state line or something. I don't think so. I think it's only the use of Federal Reserve okay. notes. All right. You go back to Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, and it says no state, meaning no state of the union, right. shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. And it's still on the Constitution, and it's unchanged. You know, you, states of the Union have to use gold or silver. These other administrative districts and or states of the United States, they do not. And if you are voluntarily using those little green pieces of paper, it becomes evidence, I suspect, can't prove it, I suspect that is evidence that you have voluntarily entered into the territory and walked away from the State of the Union. I, I, I think you're right, and I think that makes sense that, and it's a real big stretch, but it's not such a stretch when you when you look how they are enforcing. They are basically enforcing interstate commerce yeah. on anything. And so you go, well, wait a minute. How, okay, how exactly is protesting outside an abortion clinic interfering with interstate commerce? And they have, you know, with that little 300, you got to be 300 feet away from a, an abortion clinic before mm. you can, uh, that's a federal law. And when you read that federal law, at the beginning of it, they say, oh, and our authority for this law is found in the Commerce Clause, or interstate, you know, interfering with interstate commerce. It's like, well, how exactly is that in, interfering with interstate commerce? You know, you're in a state of the union, in front of some town, in front of some Planned Parenthood place with a sign saying stop killing babies. How exactly is that interfering with interstate commerce unless there's some nexus there that we don't know about that includes just about anything? Hey, you got Federal Reserves in your pocket. It You're may engaged. go that. It may be. I mean, it depends on the definition of interstate. Everyone thinks they know what it means. They read the Commerce Clause and it says to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states, and with the Indian tribes. And when someone says interstate commerce, it must mean that, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe interstate signals something entirely different than the states of the Union. And, interstate, and, and interstate may have several meanings, like oh, absolutely. the United States. I'd almost be surprised if it didn't. You know? But one of the other points, if the use of the Federal Reserve notes is a hallmark of interstate commerce, not commerce among the several states. Mm -hmm. Interstate commerce, not among the several states. It's in some different venue. It's in Washington, D.C., well, territories, rest that. What if you're using what if you're using those paper dollars down in Bolivia? What if you're using them in Mexico? Well, I or mean well, Uganda or someplace else. It does say I mean there's reference here to commerce with foreign nations. Well, you got the FBI running all around all over the world arresting people. I understand that. You know, maybe it is because, well, hey, you have Federal Reserve notes in your country here. Like, yeah, exactly. That's the right to come in here. And, and by the way, it cannot be commerce with among the several states because right. the several states can't take anything but gold and silver. That's right. Well, you know, I think within the state of the Union, within the state of Texas, I suspect that I could probably lawfully use 
I could, if I bought a car from you, I could pay you with Federal Reserve notes if you're willing to accept them. Sure, you could pay me in rocks if I was willing to accept them. That's exactly right. <laughs> and the rocks might ultimately have more value than the Federal <laughs> Reserve notes. All right? But in the territories, you don't have a choice. I'm going to give you these pieces of paper, and you're going to accept it as payment or discharge or whatever, but you're going to accept it as payment, a legal tender right. um, in payment of debts. It can't be mandatory within the states of the union. It might be voluntary, but it can't be mandatory. I don't know that that's absolutely true, but the government of the state of the union, they couldn't impose under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, in my opinion, they could not impose a fine, a fee, a tax, a penalty denominated in anything other than gold or silver. Well, that is something that I am working on uh, right now. takes me a while to write these things, but... uh... I'm writing a, I'm actually writing a, a request to my state legis, my state representative and state senator because you see in Oregon the attorney general because uh, I've tried this and they write you back and they say hey guess what I don't work for you I don't have to answer your questions that's right uh, I work for the, how do you know how do they know they don't work for you what's the basis of that argument well they said that because they work for the state. And, well, they uh, work for Federal Reserve notes as part of the deal. Who's their employer? They, they work for the state. Which state? Yeah, well, uh, there's uh, yeah. the next question. They're working for. They're not working for the people. But I found people out don't pay them. if the people paid them, they'd be receiving gold and silver. That I find. But I found out they are somehow compelled to answer questions and provide yeah. documents to state legislators and senators on behalf of the people. In other words, you can't speak to me directly. Go through your representative. So, okay. So I'm writing, uh, I'm, I'm writing a letter, uh, a request to, to them to provide me with any documentation or, or some sort of reasonable answer. How can this be? You know, I mean, we have this clause, uh, and we have the state of Oregon demanding that I pay them property tax, or they're going to come and steal my, uh, try to remove me from my property. Uh, how how can this be? Can you explain this? You know, and I, of course I'm. Worried. And they won't explain it because they don't dare put it in writing. I mean, I'll be astonished if anybody gives you an honest answer to those questions. Well, but they have to do something, and yeah, anything, they gotta get anything, anything is going to be yeah, they, they've got to they've got to do something kind of like what we're going to do here in the next fifteen seconds. <laughs> yeah, we're going to say, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. It's yeah. been good talking to all of you, and uh, you know, yeah. Well, they'll they'll have to say something, and anything they say will be something. I agree. I agree. You can learn from anything they send you. You know, so all right. If you're careful. You send me a document, I guarantee I will learn from that document. That's why it takes me you a while can't to write these. Bamboozle me completely. If you can put it if you gotta put anything in writing, I can come to some conclusions. You're gonna show me how the game is played. I can, you're at not least can show have me the whole questions. game. You're gonna give me some clues. I can at least it'll at least make me ask more questions. Mm-hmm. You know. Exactly right. Anyway, well, folks, we are out of we time. We are out of time. We didn't have a commercial break during the entire program, Frank. Yeah, you should take three or four extra commercials <laughs> during your next program. Frank is going to continue on into the next uh, into the next hour on his own, but he can make up for missing me being gone. He'll just run extra commercials. Oh, I'll just uh, I'll just, <laughs> I just run the one at the half. That's good. All enough, right. But. 
All right, Frank, thank you. Always a good time. I always enjoyed it. I'm Alfred Addis saying good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll tune in again next Tuesday. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you and me and my co-host, Frank Steffen. Good night. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 20 is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? 
Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU-band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is August 25th, 2015. It's Tuesday, and it's about nine and a half minutes past 8 p.m. Pacific time. If all that works out to be live where you're at, we are, in fact, live, and that means you can participate in the show. 800-932-1980, 800-932-1980. That's the toll-free number to call in and get on the show verbally. But if you would rather participate a little more anonymously, a little more in a social setting, a little less audio, like no audio, you can go to the chat room. Located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Either way, you'll get there. You'll see the chat link. Click that. Go on in there. 800 number only works during live shows that accept calls. This show is one of those. But the chat room is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can always go in there. You can also contact me through Yahoo Instant Messenger. Uh... AVRN Talk is the screen name. Chances are you'll get a, a quicker response from that than you will email. But you can email me if you'd like. American Voice Radio at Yahoo.com. All right, so there you have it. Well, tough uh, tough show to follow, American Independence Hour. I always enjoy doing the show with Al and uh Anyway, we'll just try to get on here. Now, I have a request, okay? I have a request that I talk about survival and preparedness a little bit. So, I will. Because it's important. Because, all right, let's just say, look, there's a lot of talk about September or whenever. You know, people like to, I think people like to set times things are going to happen so they have something to focus on, you know, because there's so much going on in the world that, you know, it is hard to focus. It's it's difficult to focus on things. And to focus and say, okay, well, it's going to be September, it's going to be whenever. You know, you get to you get to focus at least a little bit. And go, okay, I have a time date that I'm, I'm I got a window that I'm looking at here of opportunity. Because when we don't have that, we tend to go, ah, yeah, well, yeah, well, preparedness is a great idea, but uh, I'll get around to it. You know, whenever I got plenty of time. You know, a lot of people are like that. Most people are like that. I'm like that. I don't know. Uh, to an extent, I'm like that. Uh, and and probably everybody is to one one level or another. But the thing about preparedness overall is it gives you the opportunity not to have to panic, okay? And and to me, that's the most important thing. Because even if you don't have much of anything, if you don't panic, you've got a lot better chance of making it. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do nothing and just don't panic and you'll be fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that when you panic, it isn't ever going to do you any good. 
And preparing gives you an opportunity not to panic, okay? Because if you, you know, things start falling apart, oh, gosh, the electricity goes off, oh, man, all the stores are empty, you know, I don't have any food, I don't have any water, what am I going to do? Well, you start to panic. Maybe you come up with some stupid ideas, like I'm going to grab my rifle and go, uh, go over to the neighbors and see if they got any food. Well, if the neighbors got food, they probably got guns, and they'll probably kill you if you do that. So that's probably a bad idea. But we don't always think straight when we panic, do we? You know, and obviously things go in order of necessity. First thing you got to have is air. Well, there's not much we can do about that if we run out of air. You know, if the earth, if the air goes away, <laughs> there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Oh, sure, I don't care. You got oxygen tanks, air tanks, you're a scuba diver. How long is that going to last? You know, Okay, great. You can be the last person to die. But if we run out of air, there's a real problem. So not much to worry about there because there's not much you can do about it. However, you may want to consider like a filtering system, like a HEPA filter. They're kind of expensive, but and you can get lesser expensive filters. And some duct tape and plastic. I know I'm sounding like the idiotic government, but it's true. You can seal off your house, okay? You can seal off your house and put a filtering system in there. And look, if the oxygen completely leaves the earth, we're all dead. But if there's some kind of toxins in the air or some kind of smoke or some kind of something else, you're going to be a lot better off by sealing up your house best you can, even if it's just a room and and you only have a tiny little filter. Okay, then seal off a tiny little room and put the tiny little filter in there and just ride it out in there all right and and you know this is something that hits home to me because i i live in an area that where my where my where i live is pretty much i'm surrounded by i mean there's forest all around but where i'm at i don't have any fuel sources right around my house okay However, the smoke, if all the forests, the, 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 hey, the forest fires are, what, 40 miles away from here, 60 miles away from here, 100 miles away from here, and the smoke blows in here and nearly chokes us. Imagine if all the forests around me were burning down. It'd be really bad. Okay, so right now, it's good enough for me just to shut my window, shut my door, Keep a fan running in the house, and that keeps pretty much the nasty, nasty smoke out. And uh, it's a little hot, but, you know, it's bearable. Got a little breeze in there. But, you know, if things got really bad, I might need to, you know, seal up the cracks with duct tape and stuff. And uh, it might do me good to have some kind of filter, which I don't have right now. See, I'm not completely prepared. Doesn't mean I don't know what I ought to do. It's just, you know, doing it is a whole other thing. And this is something that I had not really considered that much. I considered respirators and, and things like that, which I have that. And I've actually slept with a respirator on during forest fire season around here a couple of years ago when it got really bad. But, 
things got to get pretty bad to do that because it kind of takes a little. You got to be really tired to sleep with a respirator on. And uh thing is, I think a filter in a sealed room may be something to consider. Next is water, okay? I went into water the other day quite a bit. I suggest you get some sort of storage devices. And I'm not talking gallon jugs, okay? Okay, listen, a gallon of water isn't going to go very far, folks. Five gallons of water isn't going to go very far either, right? So you're going to have to have some kind of water supply. Now, somebody in the chat room just mentioned something good that I, I will mention, good power backup. You should have a generator, folks, because, you know, this air filter we're talking about is going to probably run on electricity. It's not going to need much electricity, but it's going to need some. Now, you can pick up a tiny little 900-watt generator really cheap, okay? And they don't use much gasoline either. But you're going to have to have gasoline on hand. You're going to have to have a generator. You want to run that thing. Now, hey, the power might not go out, but you know what? If, if the woods are burning around you, Maybe the power lines got burned down. You know, maybe you will be without power. You don't know. Thing is, hey, having a little something to have electricity is a good plan. So consider that. That's the thing. When you look at this and you go, hey, look, uh, okay, seal off the room, get a get a little uh, air air filter purifier. That's a great idea. Oh, wait, how's that going to run? Well, on electricity, I'll just plug it in. What if there's no power? Oh, uh, hmm. Well, okay, I'm going to need a generator. Okay, what do generators run on? Oh, yeah, well, uh, I'm going to need whatever fuel that generator runs on. I'm going to have to have some of that around because you might not be able to get any of that either. Well, gee, gasoline doesn't store forever. You're going to have to use this, oh, what's the, uh, oh, what's the name of that stuff? Uh... You can buy it anywhere, Walmart, any any auto parts store. You put it in your gasoline, it extends the life of it in storage. Okay? I think you could store it for a year or something, uh, no problem if you use this. Uh, oh, somebody in the chat room will help me out and give me the name. But water, you need some some water. you got to be able to store water. And I suggest, look, depending on where you live, depending on how much money you got, you can get, uh, around where I live, you can get uh, these plastic food-grade 55-gallon drums with a screw-on top for like 30 bucks. That's it, stable. Get you some stable. Uh, gasoline lasts less than it used to last, okay? Gasoline has just turned to real garbage, but put some stable in it, it'll last a year at least, so, you know... Keep that on hand. Uh, you know, keep that in mind. Because electricity can also run a little water pump. But then again, you can also get a DC-powered water pump. They got them at, again, Harbor Freight. You can get them pretty cheap. Little water pump, 12-volt water pump. Work off the battery of your car. Right? Because if you do have storage tanks, you're going to have to get it from your storage tank to where you want to use it. If you're industrious, you can pipe it right into your house water system. 
I don't know if I only had 50 gallons if I'd want to do that, you know, because that 50 gallons isn't going to last you as, as long as you think it will. But it's a decent start, and if you live in the city, hey, you know, or city limits or something like that, maybe you can get a few 55-gallon tanks. And like I said, electricity goes out, well pumps go bad. Uh, you may have to rely on rainwater. Of course, the rainwater is polluted. So you can't just drink it straight out of the, you know, uh, you're going to have to filter it. Again, see, there's other layers, layers. Oh, all right, yeah, yeah, let's get some water. All right, we got to store the water. Now we got the water stored. What are we going to do? Oh, well, wait, before we drink it, we have to filter it. And you're going to have to get a pretty good, decent filter because there's some nasty things floating around in the air, folks. Now, let's just say you don't want to do that and you got a well. Yes, somebody in the in the uh, chat room mentioned a well bucket. Well, well bucket's a good idea, depending on how deep your well is and how much water you got in it. But if your well dries up, and lots of wells out here in the West have dried up, there ain't no more water at the bottom of your well. So a well bucket ain't going to do you any good. But if that's not your case, a well bucket is a good idea. A lot of wells are four-inch pipes. Uh, what you'd want to do, you'd have to pull your pump out of there, get it out of the way, so you're just left with your four-inch pipe. You go, now get yourself a three-inch pipe, put a bottom on it, and, uh, you know, what you, it's simple, very simple way to do this is to put a bottom on it, a cap. Uh, what you do before you put the cap on, you drill holes in the cap, and then you get a rubber, like a, a rubber flap, and you put like a uh, a bolt in the middle to hold it there. And what that does is when you lower this pipe into the water, the pressure of the, the water into this empty pipe will push the flap open. It'll push it up open and let the water flow into the pipe to the level you put the pipe into the water. And then when you get the pipe in as much water as you can get, you start pulling it up. Now, what happens is the weight of the water in the pipe will push that rubber flap back down so the water won't flow out of it. Okay? And that's that's how you do it. That's a homemade, you know, well bucket. That's as simple as they are. And you can buy well buckets. You can uh, make them out of lots of different things. But that's the simplest thing. PVC is probably light. And easy to work with. So consider that. Now that's if you've got water in your well. But your pump is dead. Or there's no electricity for you know. And you don't have any way for electricity. Uh, but if your well goes dry. Or something like that. You may be left to rely on rainwater. Now a lot of places. Come down on people for collecting rainwater. So I suggest. You don't necessarily. Hook up a rainwater system especially if you're in the city or something where you know they're going to they're going to hassle you about it. Now they may not hassle you over 55 gallon drums at the corner of your house or you know three on a side or something like that and you fill them with water now while you got water. You know, fill them with water now while you got water. And if somebody from the city comes by and goes, "What, what what's with the water on the side there? What are you doing here?" Tell them it's for fire. Oh, I've got that in case there's a fire. I, I want to have, you know, because if there's a fire, uh, we want to have water. 
I've got a little uh, battery-powered pump that I can hook to my car battery, and we can pump water and, and hopefully put out the fire before it engulfs the whole house or whatever. They'll nod their head and they'll go away because there's no way that they can argue with that because it's like, look, man, this is public safety. What, do you want my house to burn down? You want my house to go in flames so it can maybe catch to the neighbor's house and burn down the whole neighborhood? What kind of public safety officer are you? Yeah, you know, so, but keep it there and then go buy the whatever you need, the spouts, the valves, whatever you got to have to quickly hook up a rainwater catch system. You know, just go down and figure out what you need and go buy it. Keep it in your shed. Keep it around. You know, so when the time comes, you'll have it if you need it. Water is very important, folks. You'll die real quick without it. And if you live in a rural area, uh, you know, look, get the biggest storage tanks you can afford. But now, look, if you've got enough money for, say, a 25 hundred gallon storage tank myself i would suggest you buy two fifteen hundred gallon ones instead it might cost you a couple hundred dollars more but if you're willing to spend that type of money a couple hundred dollars shouldn't be an issue for you and the reason why is because fifteen hundred gallon you're going to get 500 gallons extra than a 2500 gallon plus you're going to have two tanks just in case something happens to one of them you'll have another one. Redundancy. It's serious business, this water, okay? You really don't want to run out of water. It's a, it'll be a real bad, big problem for you. Now, somebody in the, uh, in the chat room is saying that uh, concrete blocks can be used to create a rainwater collection cistern, but you need to paint the inside with waterproof paint. The cistern can, can and should be part of an underground survival room. Well, that's given, you know, the circumstance that you can actually dig into the ground. Where I live, I live on top of a, 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 a like a little, I don't want to say mountain, but it's mountainous area. I live in the, in the foothills of a valley, up in the hills. And the hills are solid rock, okay? You're not digging any underground cisterns. You're not digging any underground uh, survival rooms. You're not digging any underground anything, okay? Let me tell you a story. I hired a guy, a professional hole digger, to dig some fence posts, okay? To dig like four, no, 30 fence posts with a bobcat with an auger. He got 10 dug halfway, okay? That's what it is here. Now, I had to go out and dig those holes. These are post holes for a fence, okay? I had to get a jackhammer. Took me and a, a, another guy two days, two full days. I'm talking 10-hour days running a jackhammer and a shovel digging 30 stinking post holes. You're not digging any underground rooms around here, okay? But, hey. If you live in an area where you can, uh, hey, I'm all for underground stuff. And I'm all for, especially underground, you know, cement or cement block cisterns. Good idea. If you can do that, do that. Quick, easy. Go get yourself, uh, you know, these above ground uh, storage tanks. Hey, if all else fails, you know, I saw something at the uh, feed store just the other day. 
it's a big, I don't want to say swimming pool because it's only like three feet tall. But what it is, it's a, it's a watering uh, tank. All right? It's a big watering tank. And it's a, it holds a 1,000 gallons of water. Now, it's open. Okay? It's open like a pool. But it's cheap. You know, consider, you know, comparatively speaking, where a 1,500-gallon plastic water tank is, I think, $820 here. This 1,000-gallon open, like, pool was only $300. Hey, you know, uh, you could build a top for it. You know, so if you don't, you know, if you don't have, you know, you don't have $800, but you can put together $300 and, you know, get some plywood and plastic and whatever and build a top on that sucker, you could do that and have a 1,000 gallons of water. You see, water is very important, folks. Get as much of it as you can. Be redundant as you can because you don't want to have a huge water tank and have, you know, something happen to it. Okay, that'd be a real bummer. All right. Uh, yeah, so, okay, somebody's asked how much they cost and stuff. Well, I told you the 1,500-gallon ones are like 800 and something dollars. Uh, the 2,500-gallon ones are only like uh, $1,200. You know, so you get quite a bit more for not that much more money than a than a fifteen hundred fifty gallon tank, okay? Uh, and then I think the thousand gallon water tank is something like six hundred dollars, and they go down from there. But if you're going to go lower than that, uh, really fifty five gallon drums, you know, because you know. You get what six of those, and that's uh, what uh, three hundred and twenty gallons or something, you know. And for hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty bucks, you know. So when you get down to the lower, the smaller tanks, it's really more cost effective just to go with the uh, fifty-five gallon barrels. Okay, so you know I always consider cost versus what I'm getting because. Uh, well, I don't have a lot of money, and I'm cheap, you know, so there you go. And now somebody says to me that um, they don't like stable because uh, they say it's not it's not any good anymore, and they suggest you get something called seafoam, okay? And this is to uh, prolong the... Uh, storage life of gasoline. All right? Now, somebody's saying uh, in a gallon jug, use one, uh, use a cap of bleach. Uh, I would say stay away from bleach. And they also mention peroxide. And see, peroxide is what I'd use. And I'm not talking about the little brown bottles you buy, like at the Dollar Tree or something. You want to get the 30%, and, and this stuff will burn you, so you got to be careful with it, folks. It's like acid. I mean, 30% peroxide is, is harsh stuff. But you mix it down to 3%, and then you put it in your water. 
unless of course you, you you know you do the math and then you can put it straight in your water tank but you don't use much and uh and peroxide is far far better than chlorine uh in my opinion now in a pinch hey you do what you got to do because putting chlorine in your water is better than getting dysentery you know i'll i'll, I'll tell you that right now so hey Given the choice, I'm going with the bleach. But if I have the uh, a better choice of peroxide, I'll go with that. So, anyways, uh, I'm going to shift gears when we come back. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I don't know what I'll do when we come back. But we're going to take a break right now, and we will be back in a few minutes. <laughs> farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephanie. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is August 25th, 2015. 
2015. It's Tuesday evening. It's about 8.41 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. Go to the uh, website. Go to the chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Click it. Go on in there. They're having a good uh, conversation in there, and you'll enjoy it. I promise. Anyway. Okay, let's, oh, yeah, well, uh, hmm, let's see, the uh, Stump the Room. That first song was a guy named Bloodshot Bill. And uh, Bloodshot Bill's from Canada. And what you heard, he's a one-man band, okay? He was playing every instrument. Yeah, it was pretty interesting, huh? Anyway, uh, the second one was Jesse w- Jesse James, Lee Denison, ag- Denson, actually. The South's going to do it again. So, uh, not do it again. The South's going to rise again. Sorry. And nobody guessed it. And, uh, you know, by the way, Dr. Demento is not actually an artist. He was more of a DJ of weirdness. Yes, the DJ of weirdness. <laughs> anyway. All right, what was I talking about? I was talking about survival and preparedness, most more than survival, really. And uh, we got to water, you know, air and water, air, you know, you might want to get yourself an air purifier, some plastic or duct tape, something to seal off a little room to put your air cleaner in. So, you you know, if the air turns really bad, you can uh, at least have a place, but you're going to have to also... Think about powering it, because the power might go off. If the air is that bad, something bad probably happened, and it might have affected the power. It could be off. You might need to get you a little generator. Now, depending on what you're going to want to do with this generator, you know, how much stuff are you really going to want to run? If it's just going to be your air purifier and a light, you could probably get by with an 800-watt little tiny generator. They're pretty cheap, a couple hundred bucks, a couple few hundred bucks. You're going to need gasoline for it, okay? You're going to have to store some gasoline. Gasoline does not store very long by itself. You're going to have to put something in it. Now, I suggested stable. Somebody else said stable doesn't work as well as it used to, and something called seafoam is far better. So, Keep that in mind. If you've never heard of it, write it down. Go look at. Go look it up. If you have heard heard of it, then you probably already know. Water, hey, well buckets. You know, if your uh, pump goes bad or electricity goes out and you can't get any, a well bucket can get water out of the well. But if your well is dry, then you might have to rely on rainwater. Uh, now, listen, you'd be amazed. You might think, ah, rainwater, where I live, it's real dry. It doesn't rain much. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> An 8 by 8 roof. And you can, you know, look at your own roof and think, well, how many 8 by 8s would go up there? Whatever. 8 by 8. 8 by 8 is 64 square feet. Okay, 1 inch. Okay, 1 inch of rain on 64 square feet of, you know, roof collecting it, will give you 40 gallons of water. Okay, this is just math, all right? This is, you know, I looked it up. I looked up the formula. And, I you know, it's 40 gallons per one inch of rain on an 8 by 8 roof. All right? 
Well, hey, 40 gallons, man. You know, that's 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 a, that's one person at, uh, for over a month right there on one inch of rain. Now, most places in the United States get far more than one inch of rain. And plus, you got to understand, this is for only an 8x8 eight eight roof. Most roofs are far bigger than that on somebody's house, or even their garage has a bigger roof than that. Far bigger than that. Probably at least four, four times, maybe six times bigger than that. So, you know, you're looking at 240, 250 gallons of water off a garage for one inch of rain. But you're going to have to get filters and all that stuff because you do not want to drink rainwater straight up. I mean, I suppose rather than dying, I would. But if I, you know, you plan ahead a little bit, (laughs) get yourself some filtering systems. I would suggest get yourself a little DC water pump or a hand crank pump or both if you can afford both. And something that you can hook up a pipe to. Because the thing is, if you do that, you could get a uh, reverse osmosis system. They're about 150 bucks. It's a great filtering system. It's the next best thing to distilled, I think. Some people say it's equal to distill- distillation. Uh, you know, whatever, that's pretty good. But whatever you decide, you know, even if it's just a ceramic uh, gravity-fed bucket you're going to put them in and uh, get your drinking water that way, Uh, You're going to have to filter it somehow. All right. So then there's food. Next is food, folks. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you're going to store food, I can tell you canned food does not last forever. You know, you don't want to you don't want to really store canned food more than five years. I mean, that's really the limit. Start eating it. If if it starts getting, you know, you're on uh, uh, three years, man, start eating it and start replacing it. Keep the date straight and, uh, you know, keep rotating it. But if you go with uh, dried food, you know, in cans, regular dried food in cans, uh, that's got about a 10-year, and, and really it'll probably go 15, maybe even longer. I mean, the main thing is you just got to keep it dry. It may lose some nutritional value, but then again, you know, we're talking about survival here. But they say shelf life of 10 years on dried food. Freeze-dried food has double that. But, of course, they also say freeze-dried food, you know, they've had some freeze-dried food 40 years old and opened it up and it was fine. But they but they advertise a 20-year shelf life for freeze-dried food, Okay thing about these foods is water. You're going to need water to reconstitute them. Okay? And and good point in there about keeping it out of the sunlight. Cool and dry is the best. If you can find a cool, dry place, all your food will last longer. Okay? Cool and dry. So, you're going to need water for that. And canned food with the uh, water in it, uh, you know, that doesn't last very long. You might think it does, but it doesn't. Now, what else? Guns, ammo, 
you know, obviously, if you're going to have uh, these things and you plan on surviving, you're going to have to have a way to defend yourself. And that's really kind of up to you. All I can say is everybody, you know, the easy thing is guns and ammo, guns and ammo, get guns and ammo. And I, I'm all for that. I'm all for people getting guns and ammo. But get creative. Okay. Okay. Get creative. Uh, guns and ammo are great, uh, but there's lots of other ways to defend yourself. And I'm not telling anybody to do anything. I'm just saying that in a survival self-defense situation, uh, get creative and realize what people uh, are afraid of and provide them with that encouragement to stay away from you. I can think of several things. Fire, for one. People don't like fire. Nobody wants to burn to death in a fire, right? Think creative. Plus, there's other weapons, crossbows, bows and arrows. If you're, if you're, but you know what? Don't. If you've never fired a bow and arrow, don't go out and buy bows and arrows and think, oh yeah, well I got bows and arrows. Uh, no, bow and arrow takes some practice. Now, a crossbow. Uh, takes less practice. If you're familiar with a with, with shooting a rifle, that crossbow is, uh, you know, you got to ob- obviously operate the crossbow, but you can uh, figure it out pretty quick. Crossbows are nice, they're quiet, you know, and they're effective. Be creative, okay? Just be creative. That's that's the whole thing. What else? What else is there? Okay, you got food, you got water, you got uh, a a place where you can breathe. Somebody's asking me some questions here. What would you say to somebody who would say anybody who is storing food or water is not relying on God or trusting in him, and he who tries to save his life will lose his soul? Ah, yes. The mantra of the 501c3, bring all your money on down here to the storehouse for us to have. Yep, that's what they'll tell you. And I can tell you that for sure because I heard it on the radio right here in Jackson County, Oregon. That's right. The big mega church in this area has radios. they got a whole radio station. And, of course, that's what they say. You know, the thing is, you can say that, but the fact of the matter is there's also things this is this comes from people who read parts of the bible and basically they don't read parts of the bible they sit down and their pastor tells them things that that they say are in the bible and yeah you know th- that's true and and you know to try to save your life or lose your soul that's more like selling out to get the mark of the beast to save your life okay you know, read on. It goes into detail about exactly how you can do that. But it also tells you stories in the Bible about the virgins with oil in their lamps. If you're unprepared, you're an idiot. If you're unprepared, you're not listening to God. If you're unprepared, you're not a good steward of the life you got as a gift from God. 
That's what I say. All right? And somebody in there is saying, he's not 501c3. Well, he may not be 501c3, but that's where he got that garbage from. Because that's where it comes from. Anyway. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, somebody else said medical supplies. Good point. Uh, A great place. A great place to get medical supplies, at least some of them. I mean, some medical supplies, you know, you're going to have to go elsewhere. But the Dollar Tree. Matter of fact, I just got down to the Dollar Tree the other day. And I got uh, Ace Bandages. They don't call them that, but that's what I, you know, because Ace is a brand name like saying Tylenol instead of acetaminophen but you know what I'm saying those uh elastic wraps that you you know you sprain your ankle you put one around well those are great for large wounds and look folks you can get band-aids you can get anything but you know what you're gonna be in a survival situation and your little scratches that you get now that you think are a big deal okay they're nothing Big wounds that bleed a lot, you're going to need something more than a Band-Aid, all right? So what I get, and I, hey, I was a corpsman, man, I, you know, so I, I know something about this. Um, and yeah, you can go down to the medical supply store and pay a fortune, or you can go to the Dollar Tree, and you can get yourself an ace bandage. And I, I got these little, uh, they're only, uh, I guess, three by three which isn't very big, but, you know, there's several in a package, and I get several packages of them, and they're the non-stick gauzes. Those are good because they don't stick to your wound, because I don't know if you've ever had a wound that you've put gauze on, and as it dries up and heals, the gauze heals into the wound, and then you got to take it out and peel off it. Oh, it's not, it hurts, okay? You like to get a, a, not do that if you can avoid it, and those non-stick pads really work. What you do, you put those on the wound, many as you got to, and then on top of that, instead of going down to the medical supply store and spending a fortune, what I did was I got these pads at the Dollar Tree uh, for bladder control. All right? You're supposed to put them in your... They're not the diapers. They're the just the pads that if you have a bladder control problem, I guess you stick these in your underwear... Well, the thing is, they're big and they're very absorbent. I got packages of those, and the thing is, you put that on top of those non-sticks, and then you wrap the ace bandage around, and you've got yourself a pretty good dressing. All right? Now, there was a time when I would tell you to say, well, okay, uh, you know, get yourself some triple antibiotic down at the uh, Dollar Tree. I don't think so anymore. Now, um, and I did this myself. I stepped on a piece of glass with my foot. And, uh, well, as opposed to walking on my hands, I suppose. But anyway, I gashed my foot open pretty good. I've got pictures of it, actually. And I didn't use any kind of disinfectant except coconut oil. 
And I'm telling you, I didn't get the first bit of a redness or infection whatsoever. So I would really suggest that you get coconut oil for, you know, I, I'd suggest you get a lot of coconut oil, not just for that, but also to have for yourself because it's really healthy for you. Uh, but I would put coconut oil on it to keep the infection down and, and promote healing, and then I'd, you know, wrap it up. And you can do this for a couple of dollars at the Dollar Tree, man. Really. And they've got little dollar sewing kits down there, too. They don't have the uh, curved needles. You could go to some craft store and get those curved needles. And uh, if you got to stitch somebody up, that's what you do. I know, it sounds like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Oh, God, I, 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 yeah, well, you know, bad things can happen, and you may find yourself doing stuff like that that you never thought you'd do, but it could happen. But you can't do any of that if you're not prepared. You ain't got a needle, you ain't got any thread, you ain't got any bandages, somebody's bleeding to death, what are you going to do? You're going to panic. See, being prepared gives you the opportunity not to have to panic. And that's important. Your mindset is very important. Somebody asked me about, well, what do you think about faith in God? Do you think God wants you to do that? Yeah, I do think God wants you to prepare. I think that's why he told us in the Bible what's going to be happening and to watch for the signs. Not so we could stand around like sheep staring into the sun until it explodes. But you got to get your mind right. Everybody dies. Okay? You know, and you gotta have a you gotta have a reason. Why do you want to stay alive? You know, really, why do you want to stay alive? You gotta ask yourself that. Because if you can't come up with a reason, well, <laughs> what's the point? Anyway, plus, just you know, try not to panic. It's I can't reiterate that enough. I guess I can because I'm out of time. But the thing is, it's it it panic is one of those killers, man. Oh, what's that show? I think it was Dune or something where they said fear is a mind killer. And it is. Fear is a mind killer. You 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 stop thinking when you're afraid. You start to panic, you do stupid things to get people killed. And you know, that's just not productive. So preparation and training and that doesn't mean getting out and running a mile or doing anything like that. You can train sitting in a chair. Okay? You train your mind. You run scenarios through your head. What would I do if this happened? What do I do if that happened? Train your mind to, to prepare yourself for, you know, bad things to happen. Hey, maybe bad things won't happen, but maybe they will. Better to be prepared and have nothing happen than to be unprepared and have something happen. Anyway, I'm done for tonight. I'll be back again tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. She's driven by the power. She's driven to get the power. That is the driving force in her life. She does not answer questions uh, straight out. She is the expert of not saying what she believes. She will run on attacking Republicans and and being the first woman president. And, oh, isn't that amazing? Oh, it's a woman. She can walk and talk. The thought here is it's all politics. Parcel out favors to individual groups, whether it's unions here or the farm block there. She is steeped in controversy, steeped in sleaze. That's why they don't want us to look at her record. I would recommend that Hillary Clinton appreciate that she's not going to be, by any means, the candidate of American women. American women have diverse views on politics, just like men. At the core of almost every one of the investigations we did for eight years uh, where there were problems, and I mean major problems, with the Clinton administration, she was at the core of them. It's part of the Clinton method, which is say what you need to say at, at any given moment and rely on the lack of memory of the American public and the support of the mainstream media to support that lack of memory. And the 20-year plan really is that the Clintons share power. You know, one would be president eight years, one would be president another eight years, over a span of 20 years, with a little uh, Republican in between, perhaps. So in essence, what happened is that Bill and Hillary, in their mid-20s, before they ever took their marital vows, they took their political vows. You know, a lot of people ask me, do we have to go through all these old Clinton scandals again? Well, I have good news for you. You don't, because you can look at the new ones, because Hillary Clinton scandals are a gift that keeps on giving. Mendacious, venal, sneaky, ideological, intolerant. Liar is a good one. Scares the hell out of me. Looks good in a pantsuit. I announced today that I'm forming a presidential exploratory committee. I'm not just starting a campaign, though. I'm beginning a conversation with you, with America. So let's talk. Let's chat. Let's start a dialogue about your ideas and mine. 
And while I can't visit everyone's living room, I can try. So let the conversation begin. I have a feeling it's going to be very interesting. The challenge for Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail is she has to pretend to be something she's not. She's far more liberal than she's going to want to let on. That means you have to be very controlled. You can't be too spontaneous. You're pretending to be something. And I think that's going to be a potential problem for her on a couple of grounds. It's inauthentic, and people spot that. I am sick and tired of people who say that if you debate and you disagree with this administration, somehow you're not patriotic, and we should stand up and say, A person who's struggling herself with figuring out who she is, or more importantly, how she wants to present herself to the American public, because her own advisors told us her sort of authenticity and who she is is issue one, issue two, and issue three for her. I don't feel no ways tired. I come too far from where I started from. She's continually trying to redefine herself and figure out who she is and project an authenticity to voters who are, of course, wondering who is the real Hillary. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Could she become the first female president in the history of the United States? Her name is known by nearly every American, but who she really is remains largely a mystery. Hillary Clinton points to her time in the White House as a large part of her qualification for the job as president. But most of the news media has conveniently forgotten that her time as first lady was mired in controversy. The core of the controversy is how truthful Mrs. Clinton has been in answering questions, sometimes under oath, about Whitewater and other matters. She was the first first lady to come under criminal investigation. In both Little Rock and Washington, D.C., she was plagued by numerous scandals. Senator Clinton has extraordinary ability to obfuscate, uh, refuse to answer questions, avoid uh, confrontations, and uh, up until now has been given a pass on it. A story in the New York Times talking about why Senator Clinton voted this way, because I think some people were surprised by it. And her advisor said that she voted yes because she was moving from primary mode to general election vote. Primary mode versus general election mode? How about tell the truth mode? How about we say the same thing in the primary that we say in the general election? We know that Hillary's an insecure person. Secure people don't lie. They don't lie inveterately the way she does. What drives Hillary now is power. She very much is interested in gaining power. She considers herself to be a special person. She has a lot of arrogance, a spirit of superiority about her. And this is the driving force in her life, is to gain and acquire and maintain power. And her husband got to the top, and see, she saw it, she felt it, and she wants there herself. Over the past 16 years, Hillary Clinton has undoubtedly become one of the most divisive figures in America. How this makes her suited to unite the country as the next president is troubling to many. And recall Hillary speaking at a black church on Martin Luther King Day. What a coincidence. When you look at the way the House of Representatives has been run, it has been run like a plantation and you know what I'm talking about. And you know what I'm talking about, girlfriend. What? <sighs>
That's how she's going to get to power? By accusing the Republicans of running a plantation at a black church on Martin Luther King Day? That's it? Okay. After announcing her bid for the presidency, fellow Democrats, including former Clinton confidant and Hollywood mogul David Geffen, publicly questioned Hillary's integrity and truthfulness. Such breaks within the Clinton inner circle beg the question, what is the truth about Hillary Rodham Clinton? It's a recklessness that's born of arrogance that goes back to her 1960s roots in their narcissism. They believe they are a rule unto themselves. I mean, every time Hillary's been caught in a scandal, she really did it. No one made it up. She's deceitful. She'll make up any story, lie about anything, as long as it serves her purpose of the moment. And the American people are going to catch on to it. So who is the real Hillary Clinton? Is she a brilliant trailblazer poised to make history as the first female president? Or is she ruthless, cunning, dishonest, willing to do anything for power? Because of your position, your husband might have given you some kind of unfavorable or, you know, uh, a favored advantage. There isn't any evidence that anybody gave me any favorable treatment. Yes. Yes. A question I'd like to follow up to. First one has to do with Susan McDougall. She said that she brought the documents of Whitewater over to you at the governor's mansion. Did you receive all the documents? And if so, what became of them? Every document that we have obtained has been turned over to the special counsel, no matter where it came from. Can you tell us what you know about the story about shredding of Whitewater documents down in Arkansas? Nothing. At the gubernatorial mansion? Oh, that didn't happen, and I know nothing about any other such stories. Absolutely not. When you look at all the skullduggery in the Clinton administration, all roads lead back to Hillary. It also tells us something about the character of, of the American media. I mean, they, 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 they carry these people. A Republican with that, with those numbers of character flaws, with that sort of behavioral problem and, and, and psychopathic psychology could not run or be elected to dog catcher if it were a Republican. The politics of personal destruction was a phrase popularized by the Clintons in the 90s to describe the attacks by what Hillary called the vast right-wing conspiracy. But is she actually more familiar with practicing that fine art than being its victim? They have been the masters of the politics of personal destruction, and then they use the well-known trick of accusing your opponents of your own malfeasance. So they accuse conservatives of speaking honestly about the ethical shortcomings of the Clintons, while they, in fact, speak dishonestly about the integrity of their opponents. And that has been a bellwether, and it has done destruction to people who they've encountered. Even people in the Democratic Party would acknowledge the Clintons are particularly ruthless and particularly aggressive when it comes to campaigns. They war room. This is a military metaphor for the campaign the Clintons invented regarding instant responses, that no matter what the validity of a charge, you don't explain the charge, you don't apologize for the charge, you don't admit any error, you automatically attack the integrity or the motivations of the other side. 
There are any number of things in the Clinton's political history that is worth recalling before you go in to vote for potentially for a Clinton, in this case a Hillary Clinton. And it's a small example, but a telling one. When they turned on the travel office, where you had career civil servants doing a great job providing the travel service for the president and his staff, and they wanted to get a, a lackey friend in, they could have fired the guy in charge, but they accused him of a crime. They tried to ruin his, his life in order order to be able to get them out and get their lackeys in. When the Clintons moved to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in 1993, White House veteran Billy Dale was the director of the travel office. Dale had faithfully served seven previous presidents, starting with John F. Kennedy in 1961. But Dale, who had actually voted for Clinton for president, would soon discover that business under the Clintons would not be business as usual. We knew that we were in for a rougher transition because we had heard stories from Secret Service agents who had gone to Little Rock for a two-week stay down there. And the stories that some of the agents would come back and tell us that we just knew that it was going to be different. We didn't realize how different it was going to be. The new administration is free to fire anybody that they want to, but traditionally that does not happen. On the day of Clinton's inauguration, Wednesday, January 20th, 1993, Billy Dale got a call from an unknown woman indicating that Catherine Cornelius, the 24-year-old third cousin of President Clinton, would soon be working in the travel office. When I got to know who Catherine Cornelius was, she went to work in David Watkins' office answering phones, but she never let up in her demands to take over the travel office. In the meantime, I get a telephone call from a gentleman in Ohio, and he wants to know how he can get in on some of the White House charter business. And I said, that's what I do. I arrange the charters. And he said, I know, but he says, we can make some money here. If I had made arrangements with that gentleman, I speculate that things would have been very different than as they turned out. That call was from Darnell Martins, a partner of Clinton's close friends and Hollywood producers, Harry and Linda Bloodworth Thomason, in a travel agency called TRM. When Congress investigated, they learned Harry Thomason had multiple conversations with First Lady Hillary Clinton about taking over the White House charters. At that time, I didn't even know who Harry Thomason was, but we have since learned that Catherine was reporting to him and he was reporting to the First Lady Hillary Clinton. As Dale says, every new president has the right to hire new travel office staff even though no president had done so for over 30 years. But not only was Billy Dale fired, along with six other travel office staff members, he was also locked out of his office. But that was only the beginning. And I got accused of embezzling $14,000 that I couldn't account for because the logs were missing. At the same time, D.D. Myers is in press room briefing the White House press corps telling them that we were being fired for criminal misconduct and the FBI was being called in to conduct a criminal investigation. I think that they wanted to make it look like they were doing it because it was corruption over there so nobody would criticize them because the media liked Billy Dale and the people there. 
Gary Aldrich was an FBI agent for 26 years, the last five as an agent responsible for background checks on White House staff. Recall that the FBI had conducted investigations of all of these men and had determined that they were qualified to work in the White House and that they were honest individuals. I conducted some of those investigations. Billy Dale was humiliated and was accused of serious wrongdoing to the degree that they conduct a federal grand jury investigation and an indictment of him. I had dedicated 32 years of my life to this job and served faithfully to Democrats and Republicans alike. The experience was a major event in my career because it taught me that powerful politicians can misuse law enforcement authority almost whimsically. And because it was the first lady ordering the investigation, well then charges have to be found. That scared me. That was different from my experience in the FBI of 26 years. I thought if we have reached the level where a politician can get irritated with somebody and cause them to maybe end up in federal prison, we've got a serious problem. White House Travel Office affair became known as Travelgate. When Dale's legal bills to defend himself were estimated to run as much as $750,000, he considered a plea deal, a fine of $69,000 and a brief jail sentence. Blanche and I had been married for 38 years at that time. I decided that I would have to sell my home. Could I ask her to give up everything that we had worked for? The plea bargain seemed just that, a bargain, in order to save himself and his family from the unending ordeal. But when Dale was informed he would not be able to proclaim his innocence, he realized he couldn't bargain with the truth. In the meantime, during this year, I got a notice from the IRS that I was being audited. For the next 30 months, Dale was investigated. His son and daughter were also subpoenaed. I remember during my trial, Vicki, my oldest daughter, telling her mother that if I was found guilty and had to go to jail for something that I did not do, that she didn't know if she could live in this country any longer when the, the government would be responsible for doing something like that to her father. When the case went to trial in the fall of 1995, a procession of White House journalists volunteered to serve as character witnesses for Dale, including Britt Hume and Sam Donaldson. The press at the time, I think, ought to remind people that I testified at Billy Dale's trial as a character witness for him. The jury needed less than two hours to reach a verdict. And the jury came in and they found me not guilty on all counts. I laid my head down on the desk in front of me and cried. Ultimately, the Office of the Independent Counsel's final report on the travel office firings found that Mrs. Clinton's sworn testimony was factually inaccurate. Hillary Clinton was more powerful as a first lady than any first lady that had been in the White House that I knew of. Until I have learned that she was involved with it more than Bill was. Bill just wiped his hands of it and just would let her handle it. That's an example of the cynicism and the ruthlessness of the Clintons. And at the time, I think a lot of people thought that Hillary had at least as much to do with that as Bill did. What she did to the travel office, I mean, in a way, that is the most illustrative scandal um, because it was such an Abita Perone. Um, 
act of maliciousness toward toward these ordinary people. This guy running his travel office all these years. I'm getting them out, getting my rich Hollywood friends in. It's not even it's not even the most the most illegal thing they did, but it is the most contemptible thing they did. Billy Dale wasn't the only victim of what some would allege to be Hillary Clinton's brutal and corrupt political machine. I would say the most important thing I would study is her conduct as First Lady, not as Senator, and the, uh, her lack of uh, sensitivity to civil liberties, of privacy, using the Internal Revenue Service, her hostility to opponents, her hardness, her meanness. The Clinton administration, almost from its first day, started using the, uh, the IRS as a threat. I know a lot of tax lawyers, and they said the odds of someone like Paula Jones with her income being audited by the IRS um, is like being struck by lightning twice. Others would claim that using the IRS to harass political enemies was a Clinton White House specialty, one reminiscent of the strong arm of Richard Nixon. They're both very smart, very politically ruthless, very hardworking, great work habits. Uh, some of them not complimentary, very cynical, uh, willing to do things uh, that are beyond the pale of, of proper conduct. Proper conduct would not include using private investigators to intimidate. Those allegations come from several women involved with Bill Clinton, including Jennifer Flowers, Elizabeth Ward Grayson, Paula Jones, and Kathleen Willey. The scare tactics, you know, being followed, being audited by the IRS, their homes broken into. I mean, where does it end? Clinton supporter and campaign worker Kathleen Willey was a White House volunteer who alleges that President Clinton sexually assaulted her during a meeting in the private study off the Oval Office in November of 1993. I kept thinking to myself, what in the hell is he doing? I, I just, that's what I kept thinking, and which sounds silly at the time, but I, I was I was getting embarrassed for him if that does, it's just, you know, this is just not proper. You have to remember, this was at the time when there was a lot of speculation about us womanizing, and I was the loyal Democrat, and I would not allow myself to believe that that was true. I just, I just thought it was all just rumor. Willie believes that Hillary Clinton was well aware of the tactics used by the Clinton White House to intimidate perceived enemies. Willie says two days before she was set to testify against President Clinton in the Paula Jones sexual harassment case, a stranger confronted her. We passed, and he stopped, and he said, hey, Kathleen, did you ever find your cat? And then he said, rather ominously, um, yeah, that bullseye was a really nice cat, and that's what I thought, that something else was going on here. He stood back and he said, you're just not getting the message, are you? The Clinton attack machine immediately targeted Willie. However, there are corroborating witnesses. Jared Stern, a former Marine, later told congressional investigators he was hired to investigate Kathleen Willie during a clandestine nighttime meeting. Late at night, he called me, asked me to meet him here in this parking garage. I met him, said he had something very important to discuss. I talked to him about it, uh, discussed the tasking, and then I left to carry it out. Stern declines to discuss what he was hired to do, but Stern has admitted he was so uneasy about it that he called Willie, using an alias. 
I made a telephone call to Miss Willie. I left a message on her answering service indicating that I'd try again the next day. And he left a message for me saying, be careful that there were people out to get me. Jared Stern is a first-hand witness to what the, the Clintons are doing, have done, and are doing to these women. The Clintons are a unit. They share a zeal for power and a willingness to engage in any and all threat neutralizing strategies. Legality be damned. No one will ever say what happened to Kathleen Willey was an anomaly. That MO can be seen throughout the Clintons' political lives. It is consistent. Willey says her car was vandalized, her house broken into, and a cat's skull was left on her porch. Today, she still lives in fear. And I don't understand how any woman in this country could vote for a woman who does that to other people, who sets out to destroy and ruin the, these women who have crossed paths with Bill Clinton. They're power hungry. They stop at nothing. They stop at nothing. If you put me to work for you, I'll work to lift people up, not push them down. I finally parted company with Hillary Clinton when I saw how she was using private detectives to investigate the women who were linked to her husband. Not to change him, not to reform him, not to make him a better person, but to cow the women into silence so that he could get elected president. I do not want that woman controlling the IRS or the DEA or the NSA or the FBI or the CIA. Not in a democracy, I don't. I mean, think of what it says about, about Hillary Clinton, that she was willing to put up with, with his open philandering, with, with anything in a skirt who wanders before his eyesight, all for the power. Um, at least with Bill Clinton, he was just, you know, good time Charlie. Hillary's got an agenda, and she's willing to put up with that to, to be president of the United States. She, she's got a to-do list when she gets to the White House. Hillary Clinton's Machiavellian behavior, her tendency to manipulate, deceive, and destroy for personal gain, is nothing new. This woman, now a hero to feminists, gained much of her power during the Clinton presidency from her ability to deal with her husband's infidelities. Bill was always heavily involved in the policies of his administration, but he left chasing down his women and silencing them, pursuing the scandals and lying about them, escaping culpability for any of the things in their past, to Hillary. She was his Nixon. She was his evil equivalent. She was the one who made sure that nothing got to him uh, because she was so good at it. And she was. Hillary's mastery of the black arts of attack politics is often skillfully cloaked in layers of deniability. But when she needs money, as all candidates do, her imprudence bewilders even her most loyal supporters. The pattern is a familiar one. Huge amounts of money are raised from political insiders, lobbyists, and special interest groups, and questions follow. In the summer of 2007, Hillary was forced to return nearly $900,000 from fundraiser Norman Shue, who is now under indictment for running a Ponzi scheme. During the White House years, 
It was the dirty money of a cast of characters that included Johnny Chung and Charlie Tree, both convicted of illegal campaign fundraising. I think it was Johnny Chung that said the White House was like a subway turnstile. You put the money in and you got in. And if his tokens were very large, of course. Um, there's evidence that he collected money from a Chinese intelligence officer and they were trying to influence our elections to gain access to decision-making uh, powers in the United States so they would bend U.S. policy towards China. The campaign finance scandals were so extensive, 120 people either fled the country to avoid being in interrogated by investigators, pled the Fifth Amendment, or otherwise avoided questions. Fourteen guilty pleas came out of that. This is really stunning. Um, and it's stunning to me how the media will give her a pass and how the media pretends none of these things happen. And they accept the, the Hillary uh, operative's line, which is, well, let's, that's, that's old news. Everybody knows about it. Let's move on. Okay, we move on. Now they're laundering money through Chinese dishwashers in Chinatown in New York. I'm a little surprised somebody in the campaign didn't flag that down and say, ah, uh, dishwashers, maximum contribution or $1,000. Um, let's look into that a little bit. Uh, the Los Angeles Times looked into it and found that they couldn't find something like a third of these uh, Chinatown contributors and that they found other people who uh, said they had no idea that they had made contributions. It looks like a clear case that somebody committed fundraising law violations and the Clinton campaign at the least did not do due diligence to try and track that down. One case in particular highlights Hillary's hypocrisy and startling recklessness when it comes to raising illegal campaign contributions. Though most of the news media has ignored it, Hillary was directly involved in what has been called the biggest campaign finance fraud in the history of the United States. It is a story with all the elements of a bestseller, cash, cons, and Hollywood stars. And it was all caught on tape. Few businessmen have seen the career heights and depths of Peter F. Paul. I've been fortunate to spend time with some of the world's most celebrated figures of the 20th century. One of my idols was Salvador Dali. He had a big influence on the way that I directed my life. In the early 1980s, Paul, a Miami lawyer with a past criminal record, including convictions for cocaine possession and fraud, headed to Hollywood for a fresh start as a promoter and producer. After doing various projects in Hollywood, I decided after meeting a fellow who was a uh, out-of-work uh, model that uh, there was an opportunity for me to prove that I could cultivate a media icon. Within 18 months I had him on the cover of People magazine. Ultimately it led to my first meeting with the Clintons, uh, with Hillary Clinton actually. In February of 2000, Peter Paul met with Hollywood charity fundraiser Aaron Tonkin. Tonkin was a celebrity-obsessed con man who in just a few years went from being homeless to one of the Clinton's top money contacts in Hollywood. Like more than a few Clinton associates from the past, Tonkin ended up in federal prison for unrelated fundraising scams. It's Hillary Clinton. I just wanted to call and wish you well for this evening. It was a growing new relationship. I don't know where it ultimately would lead, but I was not in a good place because all the people that I met around them, that I dealt with in different events, have all gone to prison.
is, and these are very close people, mainly to the president. Through Tonkin's connections to the Clintons came an interesting offer. In exchange for donations to Hillary's 2000 Senate campaign, Paul would gain access to Bill Clinton for business opportunities once Clinton left the White House. I had uh, become a very close friend of, of the creator of Spider-Man, Stan Lee. And we had started a company together in uh, late 1998. So I embarked on this effort to try to hire Bill Clinton when he left the White House as a rainmaker for the company, Stanley Media. We had a, a luncheon at Espagos for 12 people who were influential in the community. And we also raised some money for Hillary. And at that point, I indicated that my plans were to hire Bill when he left the White House. She responded by saying that she would help if I became a major supporter of her campaign. In June of 2000, Paul agreed to finance what would be the largest and most lavish political fundraiser ever staged in Hollywood. It consisted of a concert, a dinner, and a reception. In my office on July 17th, I got a phone call from Hillary Clinton. Paul, who had a habit of videotaping many of his encounters with Hollywood or DC power players, says this tape is evidence of two criminal offenses committed by Senator Hillary Clinton. The tape seems to indicate Clinton's participation in the planning of the event, violating federal election statutes. I think that uh, whatever it is you're doing, I, is it okay that I thank you? <laughs> I think it's tremendous. No, we know what we're having a good time trying to help out. Well, I'm. I'm very appreciative. It sounds fabulous. I got a full report from Kelly uh, today when she when got When Hillary this. says she's not sure about what she can or cannot say, is she admitting that her input on the event could be illegal? I think that uh, whatever it is you're doing, I, is it okay that I thank you? Hillary Clinton refers to Kelly. Kelly is Kelly Craighead, Hillary's senior staff assistant at the White House. Hillary's confirmation that she had been fully briefed on my progress and that she would be involved on a personal basis whenever needed, committing a violation of the federal election law. I know I talked with Chair and uh, you know, she was just great, just said, you know, she really was excited and I hadn't talked to her, so you had to have really done a good job selling it to her. And her reference to Cher being induced to contribute her singing services, all of them colluded to hide this from every investigation. All of the expenses that I paid for entertainment and costs of various fundraisers for Hillary were never legally reported. But what I discovered was because Hillary was involved directly, personally, and indirectly through her agent, Kelly Craighead, in conceiving the event, in soliciting the money to pay for the event, and then coordinating the expenditures for the event, clearly the two of them were violating federal law. Ladies and gentlemen, the chairman of Stanley Media, Stanley, I just want to welcome you all to the Hollywood salute to President William Jefferson Clinton. It was the biggest event ever produced in Hollywood for a president. Muhammad Ali, John Travolta, Brad Pitt, Shirley MacLaine, the Steenbergen, the Gregory Peck, shared Diana Ross, Patti LaBelle, Tony Braxton, Melissa Etheridge, Sugar Ray, Michael Bolton, Paul Anka. We had over 100 stars. The entire leadership of the Democratic Party was there. And it was, it was a magical evening.
just two days later, the magic was gone. The Monday after the event, I got a phone call from Ed Rendell telling me that the Washington Post was asking questions. The position that Hillary Clinton would take was that she hardly knew me and that I didn't give any money and that if I was smart in order to maintain my deal that I would go along with that. The Washington Post bombshell questioned Hillary's decision to associate with Paul, given his criminal past. The Clinton camp implied they weren't aware of it. I had been vetted six times. My house had been prepared for a presidential sleepover. And the president allowed me to put my name on 25,000 invitations. It's impossible to think that they didn't know that I had federal convictions, which anybody that uses the internet can find with, within four clicks. Peter Paul was basically paying for the entire event, and he was held at arm's length. He wasn't invited to the White House, and they did not really want to interact with him. And I, it never really dawned on me, because I, I really didn't understand those part of politics and how it works, that they do a vetting process. Amazingly, the Clintons continued to solicit money from Paul, even after publicly distancing themselves from their newfound friend. On August 24th, a fax was sent to my office on Hillary's letterhead, the Hillary Clinton for Senate letterhead, by her finance director, David Rosen, asking me to transfer $100,000 in stock. And here you have a smoking gun document, which is on her letterhead, faxed to my controller, with the wiring instructions to send $100,000 worth of stock. That's illegal. When I became Hillary's biggest donor, no one made any reference to concerns about my credibility, my truthfulness, or my, my ability to honestly do business. You know, Hillary has no problems with me as long as I'm writing checks. From there, the Paul case takes twists and turns no screenwriter could imagine. Stanley Media collapses. Paul is indicted on two felonies in connection with trading of Stanley Media stock. He's arrested in Brazil by Interpol and languishes two and a half years in a Brazilian hellhole of a prison awaiting extradition. She's never called me a liar, and she's never said that my allegations are false. What she has sworn to is that she can't remember some conversations that we had in detail. I'm not asking anybody to like me or to trust me or even to believe me. I'm asking people to look at the record that is undisputed and to come to their own conclusions regarding the suitability of Hillary Clinton to acquire the highest office in this country. June 9, 2000, did you discuss with Hillary Clinton supporting her campaign in exchange for President Clinton helping you in your business and concerns? Yes. Did Hillary Clinton pledge President Clinton's support for your business interests? Yes. August 13, 2000, at Barbara Streisand's home, did you talk with Hillary Clinton about supporting her campaign, provided President Clinton help you with your business interests? Yes. I've been analyzing polygraphs since uh, 1995. I attended the Department of Defense Polygraph Institute I would say Mr. Paul has been truthful in his answering the questions concerning the issues administered in the polygraph. It was the most lavish affair of all. But her campaign said that it cost 400000 not $1.1 $1 .1 so that they could use the other 700000 
for the campaign and use it to buy advertisements. Now the question is, did Hillary know it was a mistake? Of course she did. Number one, she was there and she knew it couldn't have only cost 400. Number two, she frequently urged Peter Paul to hold down the expenditures for it. Number three, after the forms were filed with the FEC, Peter Paul told her they were inaccurate and Hillary continued to file inaccurate forms. And finally, the FEC investigated it and concluded it did cost 1.1 million. I want to thank Stan Lee and Peter Paul and Aaron Tonkin for their extraordinary hard work and leadership on this. The Clinton campaign ultimately paid $35,000 in fines for having underreported the cost of the gala. Aaron Tonkin says both Senator Clinton and her finance director, David Rosen, knew of his illegal financing schemes, including how he reimbursed celebrities who donated to Hillary's Senate campaign. They wrote a check where I told them to write it, the Senate 2000, from the invitation they received, and then I reimbursed them either one or 2000, depending if one or two people came. I told her national finance director, David Rosen, and he just said, don't tell me anything like that. And um, I told the um, FBI. Is it possible that the senator from New York and former first lady, the most experienced of all the candidates, was completely unaware of her finance director's dealings? Peter Paul awaits sentencing for securities fraud. He vows to spend the rest of his life trying to expose what he characterizes as Hillary's chronic pattern of corruption. Well, I think that, like William Sapphire said in the New York Times, Hillary's a congenital liar. Even David Geffen, who was a supporter of hers, uh, commented on her facility with lying. So if she can do this as publicly and in such a, a, a gross and unvarnished way, then imagine if she got additional power in the White House and what she would do with that. I can't think of any other politician in history who has shown such a disrespect and a contempt for the Constitution and the rule of law as Hillary. And, and I represented Richard Nixon's best friend, and uh, I knew Richard Nixon. And I'll tell you something, she's no Richard Nixon, she's worse. <laughs> One of her great claims um, throughout the 90s and in her present career as, as senator is that she'll say, oh, this is all old news. Well, it's old news because the Clintons are repeat offenders. They've been doing these things going right back to the 1980s. Senator Hillary Clinton has basically done nothing of note. Uh, she's not been a leader in national security. She's not been a leader on economic issues. She's not been a leader on anything. Is Hillary really the most qualified to hit the ground running if elected president? After all, she was first lady for eight years and now a senator from New York. Referring to her opponents, she said, quote, there is one job we can't afford on the job training for. That is the job of our next president. To be the first woman from the state of New York, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hillary says we should elect her president because of her tremendous accomplishments in the United States Senate. Well, she's passed roughly 20 bills. Let me tell you what some of them were. To commemorate the 225th anniversary of the American Revolution, 
to express our appreciation to Alexander Hamilton, to name the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse in Lower Manhattan, to honor the men's and the women's lacrosse high school team from Syracuse High School, to express the sense of Congress that Harriet Tubman, who died over 100 years ago, should have received a federal pension. But is that the legislative gravitas and qualifications on which to elect a president of the United States? Is she kidding? During her Senate campaign, Hillary promised to create 200,000 jobs, largely to benefit economically depressed upstate New York. And if you help me get elected, I'll work day and night to put this plan in effect for the people and children of New York. I'm Marshall Brown. I'm the owner-operator of GMB Farm. I grew up here with my father. We sold out in 1985, and I started back up in 1987. I milk cows every day of my life for 20 years. Agriculture is New York State's largest industry. I don't know if Hillary was told that when she got off the plane or not. Dairy farming is the largest segment of that. Three years ago, Hillary Clinton came to Oswego County. She said she had a plan for the dairy industry. Like all her plans, she never gives any specifics, but it's going to make everything all wonderful for us. Two years after she gave her I Got a Plan speech, the price of milk dropped to the same level it was in 1979, and I'm losing my ass. Senator Clinton's promise of 200,000 jobs for upstate New York was one of the most irresponsible statements she ever made. Because, A, it proved to me that she had no clue what was wrong with upstate New York, and B, there's no way the federal government can deliver that. Should she have made the promise? Oh, sure. That's what politicians do. That's what God put them on the earth to do, is make promises they can't keep. I don't fault her for making the promise. I fault her for making bad votes in the Senate against the very tax cuts that would have helped the state of New York. Now, the Bush tax cuts were the only hope upstate New York had of competing, and if New York State wasn't so burdened by heavy taxes, heavy unionism, heavy regulatory red tape, upstate New York would be doing dramatically better. Because I do have a plan. I have an economic plan for upstate New York to try to make sure that we keep our young people here, that they can have jobs in this area, they can stay and raise their children. Between 2000 and 2006, over one million New Yorkers moved out of the state for economic or financial reasons. Today, in the upstate town of Clinton, New York, many of Hillary's constituents aren't pleased with their senator. Well, we certainly would like more support from her in this area. I think every business would like to see more economic support. I think that uh, she's just a typical politician. Whatever the uh, survey shows she should be doing, she's doing. She tends to spend most of her time downstate. That's where the votes are primarily, and uh, sometimes we feel forgotten up here. She cares more about her consumers, her food stamps, her welfare programs than she does the American farmer that's producing the food. When the American farmer is eligible for food stamps, there's a problem. Which I am. As a presidential candidate, Hillary has made other promises that may also prove difficult to keep. My plan does not create a single new government department, agency, or bureaucracy. It is not a government takeover of health care. It is a public-private partnership that provides more choices. Her sweeping health care reform proposal comes with a price tag of nearly $110 billion per year. Ann is going to pay more. You are going to pay more. People with jobs will pay more. 
That's why she's so popular with women with needs, but not so popular with women with jobs. Hillary's first effort to socialize health care came in 1993 during her husband's first term. Widely perceived as a disaster, many say it provoked the Republican Revolution. I mean, certainly you have to ask whether or not she's learned a lot from that experience. It was a failure. She knows it was a failure. It was a very embarrassing failure for her. Where have you seen the government make anything more efficient and less costly and more effective by its presence? Where have you seen that? As I've said on many occasions, I still have the scars to show from what we tried to do back uh, in the first two years of Bill's administration. The effort to kill Hillary Care was really good common American sense. Americans uh, know a bad fish when they smell one. Everything Hillary wants for America is what Canada does for all of its people, any one of whom that has five extra bucks in their pocket comes across the border to the United States for health care services. I think it's worth remembering, uh, after her health care fiasco, the Clinton team put us aside. They gave us ceremonial duties thereafter. She was more like a Pat Nixon than she was like an Eleanor Roosevelt from mid-94 onward because Bill Clinton's professionals recognized she made a hash of the one big policy she'd been given. She was essentially out of the White House in 95, 96, and I know because I was there most of that time. She was visiting China. She went to 70 foreign countries. She wrote a best-selling book, did book signings. Then when the Lewinsky scandal broke, she came back to Washington and in 98 and 99 led the effort to keep her husband in office and in 99 and 2000 spent her time running for the Senate in New York. Many Americans believe our health care system needs improvement. But what is Hillary's solution? Hillary is really the closest thing we have in America to a European socialist. She really believes that government should vastly expand its efforts in the areas of health care and education, and she wants to increase taxes to do it. From 33% as it is now, up into the mid-40s and high-40s as it is in France and Germany. I'm going to take $10 billion away from a lot of these uh, industries, starting with money from the HMOs that are getting too much out of Medicare, starting with the no-bid contracts for Halliburton, starting with the defense industry that needs to be pared down and reined in. I've been very clear about that. And as she talks on the campaign trail, um, her purpose of government, as she sees it, is to remold society for the common good. The common good in this case means government. It means Washington. She wants government to be in control. She wants government to direct the economy. The other day, the oil companies reported the highest profits in the history of the world. I want to take those profits and I want to put them into a strategic energy fund. She expects to use the government uh, to, to become extremely involved with the lives of the people in this country because government knows best. So when she talks about nationalizing health care, She's not kidding. She's been at this now for 10 years. She wants to take over the health care system. What might Hillary's health care plan look like? Welcome to Yuma, Arizona. In my practice, about 70% of the care is paid for by Medicare, federal government, and another 20% is paid for by the state. So essentially, we're a very socialized medical community here. But with so much free health care available from the state and federal government, abuses are inevitable. 
one of my favorites is a patient of mine who was actually a drug runner. His book didn't tally, and to teach him a lesson, they blew a hole in his foot with a shotgun down in Mexico. Well, he went to the closest medical hospital in Mexico where medical care was free, and they were going to amputate his foot. So he hopped up to the border, literally, and at that point demanded an ambulance, which by our emergency medical laws we have to supply. So we got an ambulance to him. We brought him to our emergency room. I asked him, I said, let me guess, this guy's insured, right? And, and uh, my friend said, oh, actually, he has Medicare. This guy's been wanted for years on four federal warrants. We're giving him his Social Security check every two weeks. Critics say Hillary's health care overhaul is not unlike what citizens of Canada or the UK now experience. Yes, much of it is free, but is there a catch? The waiting lists get longer and longer. You can wait six months to see a specialist. That's socialism. When you're standing in a line waiting and waiting, that's socialism. I'm thrilled that uh, universal health care is back on the national agenda. You know, as we Remember back in 93 and 94, we tried to come forward with a plan. We weren't successful. I have the scars to show for that experience. Medicine should be between one physician and the patient, not between an army of bureaucrats and the patient. If people give their health to the government, what does the government not control? The federal government from 3,000 miles away is not your doctor. Hillary's health care is one of the few Clinton campaign platforms that contains specifics. But on other issues important to Americans, what does she believe? But on specific issues, I've come out with very specific plans. With respect to Social Security, I do have a plan. But personally, I am not going to be advocating any specific fix until I am seriously approaching fiscal responsibility. Do you, the New York Senator Hillary Clinton, support the New York governor's plan to give illegal immigrants a driver's license? I did not say that it should be done, but I certainly recognize why Governor Spitzer is trying to do it. No, no, no. You said, you said yes. No. You thought it made sense to do it. No, I didn't, Chris. It makes a lot of sense. What is the governor supposed to do? Do I think this is the best thing for any governor to do? No. Obviously, she hadn't been coached on. And if she's not coached, she's, uh, despite the fact that she's intelligent, she is so uh, insecure uh, and so uh, loathes the give and take of real politics that she just seizes up. And she sure seized up when those questions were asked her. Now, finally, for the first time, everyone talks about, well, Hillary talks about how, oh, they were so mean to her, they were so mean to her. All that happened in that debate was that I think it was Tim Russert in that debate engaged in the old journalistic practice of the follow-up question. That's all, that's all it took. And, you know, all <laughs> hell breaks loose because Hillary's asked to actually tell us what your position is. You know, it raises the question, uh, can you withstand the criticism in the way that any president has to? Uh, because there's going to be a lot of it for any president at any time, even the most propitious times. And uh, if you're going you're gonna to whine about people complaining about you, that doesn't suggest uh, presidential stature or character. I can support the president. I can support an action against Saddam Hussein because I think it's in the long-term interest of our uh, national security. If I had been president in 2003, I never would have started this war. And if it is still going on when I am president in 2009, I will end it. I was one who supported giving President Bush the authority, if necessary, to use force against Saddam Hussein.
I believe that that was the right vote. If I had been president in October of 2002, I would have never asked for authority to divert our attention from Afghanistan to Iraq, and I certainly would never have started this war. So it is with conviction that I support this resolution as being in the best interests of our nation, and it is a vote that says clearly to Saddam Hussein, this is your last chance. Disarm or be disarmed. I stand for ending the war in Iraq, bringing our troops home. We're going to have troops remaining there guarding our embassy. We may have a continuing training mission, and we may have a mission against al-Qaeda in Iraq. There's one Hillary who says, I'm going to bring the troops home right away when I'm elected president. Another Hillary who says, I'm going to keep troops in Iraq indefinitely. One of these two women is lying. I think she did that as long as she thought that it was still politically advantageous to support the war effort. Once 2006 kicked in and the war became quite unpopular, at least for a while, uh, then she started moving to the anti-war position, reversing her positions, which she held only months before. Not because uh, her heart uh, was full of, uh, of uh, pacifistic leftist tendencies, because she thought it was the politically expedient way to go. Flip-flopping on a driver's license is one thing, but words do matter, particularly when they impact the lives of our soldiers and their families. He loved being a Marine. He looked me square in the eye and he just said to me, he said, Dad, he said, Dad, what could be better, what could be more honorable than to serve your country? Uh, it was at that point where uh, he became my hero. In January of 2007, Senator Clinton visited Iraq. While there, she did an interview with ABC News stating, I don't know that the American people or the Congress at this point believe this mission can work. And in the absence of a commitment that is backed up by actions from the Iraqi government, why should we believe it? Because I was in Baghdad at that time, and we talked about that. I'm thinking, what the heck goes through the minds of our military that are out on those front lines, the Ramadi, the Fallujahs, out walking the streets of Baghdad, Hadifas, and, and throughout Iraq, putting their life on the line every single day and hearing something like that. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just so demoralizing. Robert Buzz Patterson served as the president's senior military aide in the Clinton White House. Distinguished service in the Air Force, including combat missions, and his regular interaction with the First Lady gave him unique insight about the potential future commander-in-chief. They see that when Mrs. Clinton says something stupid about the war, or Harry Reid says the war is lost, or Dick Durbin calls them uh, war criminals, uh, that is played immediately on Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya overseas. That does nothing to support the troops. Uh, all it does is embolden the enemy to believe if they can hang out a little bit longer, they win. It's very hard to believe her because you don't know what the next day she's going to say. And, you know, from a four-star general to, the, to a private understands what it means to be a leader, what it means to have moral backbone and, and discipline and integrity. And the military saw uh, none of that during the 1990s and does not see that any of those uh, attributes in Mrs. Clinton today. If we do pull out and we do not complete this mission, my son's sacrifice would have been in vain, along with the other fallen heroes.
if if a legislator does not like the war and decides enough already with this war, then cut off the money. They're entitled to do that. But above all, it's not up to a legislator to try to outguess the military strategists. That's not their job. So you say again, okay, well, she's flipping, she's flopping. No, she's not flipping and flopping. She's lying. She will not take responsibility for calling and asking our good, brave soldiers to put their life on the line. She will not take responsibility. Every Democratic candidate, they all want to just get out of Iraq, just whatever it takes. When the fact of the matter is that you can't have good security in Iraq until you've dealt with, at a minimum, Syria and Iran, because they're the ones who are arming, training, and running a lot of these terrorists. The war on terror isn't the only issue where Hillary is trying to have it both ways. When it's politically expedient, Hillary campaigns on her husband's presidency. But when the polls say otherwise, she abandons their record. But she can't be as selective in terms of you know, cherry picking and making determinations uh, that she's now suddenly the face of foreign policy, that she you know, shaped economic policy, except for the stuff that didn't work out. Uh, in which case, that was somebody else's problem or somebody else's fault. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard uh, a stunning illustration of my real campaign slogan. Buy one, get one free. This is as much about Bill Clinton as it is Hillary Clinton. I mean, for purposes of this election, it's one and the same. Buzz Patterson carried the nuclear football for President Clinton. While serving in the Clinton White House, he learned firsthand about the former First Lady's qualifications. When she was moving around the White House hallways and corridors, the, the edict was for us to avoid eye contact with her so as to preclude her from making exchanges like good morning, good afternoon, and therefore the, those of us that worked in and around herself and her husband would oftentimes dive into open office, uh, office ways and doorways to avoid her stare. Well, I saw her vent on her husband many, many times. In one particular situation, we were at a fundraiser. As we entered the uh, elevator to go to the top floor of this hotel, Mrs. Clinton lit into her husband with every profane, four-letter word you've ever heard in your life, and as a military guy, I've heard them all. The anger really took me by surprise how vicious it was and how profane it was, and then, of course, we got to the top floor of the elevator, uh, of the hotel, and the elevator opened. They were holding hands and smiling and waving like uh, they, could, they could turn it on and off in a heartbeat. Both Clintons are well aware the war on terror could be the key issue in Hillary's run for the presidency. Both have been quick to fault the Bush administration for failing to prevent the 9-11 attacks, while absolving the Clinton White House of any missed opportunities. There were many times, eight to ten that I'm aware of uh, in the 1990s, that we had a chance as a country to, to capture bin Laden or to kill him, eight to ten. And every, every time we had a viable opportunity, uh, Clinton chose not to pull the trigger. You know, and I'm certain that if my husband and his national security team had been shown a classified report entitled Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States, he would have taken it more seriously than history suggests it was taken by our current president and his national security team. Patterson says that's laughable. He says President Clinton was briefed by multiple U.S. intelligence agencies of al-Qaeda plans to attack the United States. We knew about the potential, for Nick specifically pointed to the possibility of using hijacked airliners into the Pentagon, CIA headquarters, and it also talked about New York City. 
Cyrus Narasta is the award-winning writer-producer of the ABC miniseries The Path to 9-11. Though his movie takes aim at both the Clinton and Bush administrations in the days and years prior to 9-11, Narasta says he and his film were targeted by the Clinton machine. There was a huge coordinated campaign to discredit the movie and me and get Disney ABC to pull or recut the movie. In the weeks just prior to air, Narasta's home address and email were posted on various pro-Clinton websites. I got death threats at my house, I got hate mail, and they set about basically trying to destroy us and stop this thing from airing. Intimidation included five senators led by Harry Reid sending a letter to Disney ABC threatening to revoke their station licenses if they didn't pull or recut the movie. You gotta understand, these phone calls, the threats on the internet, these bloggers, all of these people out there, none of them had seen the movie. This was all political spin, and it was generated by ex-president Clinton from his offices in Harlem, where he met with all of these bloggers to specifically discuss countermeasures uh, against the ABC broadcast, the path to 9-11, and how they could get it pulled from the air. Disney ended up cutting about three minutes from the over five hours of the broadcast. So I'm going to show that to you now. They have the compound surrounded. They know where Bin Laden is. And what they need to do is coordinate with Washington. So they're on satellite uh, phone communication with Sandy Berger, Richard Clark, George Tenet, Ed Al from Washington to basically get the final green light to go ahead with this operation. Our people are in place. Now, it's been confirmed that Osama bin Laden is in the building on the site. You are the national security advisor. Can't you give the order? Look, George, if you feel confident, you can present your recommendation to the president yourself. So if it all goes bad, it comes down on my head, like Janet Reno and Waco. The buck stops down the hall. Mr. Berger, sir. Yes. It's shocking that ABC would, would bow down to Bill Clinton on the path to 9-11. Um, it's shocking that Bill Clinton would ask. You can't imagine Walter Mondale doing that. I don't even think you could imagine Jimmy Carter doing that. President Clinton has said he never got that close to getting Osama bin Laden. But national security experts have said on the record that the path to 9-11 was accurate. The path to 9-11 got it right. That's why they were upset. We exposed uh, the hot button truth that they've been trying to bury for years. The $40 million project was a rating smash with nearly 28 million viewers. It later received seven Emmy nominations, but if you want to catch The Path to 9-11 on DVD, you can't. ABC Disney won't release it. 
why would they pass up millions of dollars in DVD revenue? I think the initial attacks were really about uh, President Clinton's legacy. However, now, a year later, with the DVD being suppressed, I think it has become about Hillary's run for the White House. All I can say is uh, what the executive ABC told me, which is if Hillary wasn't running, this wouldn't be a problem. Clinton National Security Advisor Sandy Berger pled guilty to stealing and destroying highly classified documents from the National Archives and lying to investigators. I might say it seems Sandy walked out of the National Archives with some PBDs in his BVDs and some classified docs in his socks. I was surprised and astonished uh, when I learned that he had taken documents out of the National Archives, stuffed them in his socks. Uh, I have written that the only reason Berger might have done this was at the behest of Bill Clinton or someone of similar stature who wanted information or, you know, single copies of unique copies removed from the archives. The papers reportedly revealed Clinton's response regarding the Millennium bomb plot and Sudan's offer to turn over bin Laden in 1996. But because Sandy Berger destroyed these critical secret documents, the American people may never know the truth about these events or the Clinton administration and 9-11. The documents that he stole pertain specifically to the sequence in the miniseries that they were upset about. I believe they are criminally guilty of distorting history. There was a smoking gun in there in terms of what the Clinton administration knew about bin Laden. Sandy Berger had a mission. That mission was to go in and clean up history, clean up mistakes, destroy any evidence of uh, error uh, or culpability to uh, actions that led to 9-11. He accomplished that. He basically paved the way for her to move forward and give Bill a free pass. I mean, that's that simple. Sandy Berger was fined, lost his security clearance for three years, and was disgraced, especially in Washington. But he has resurfaced. Reportedly, Berger is now an advisor to the presidential campaign of Hillary Rodham Clinton. It's either that he's really good at foreign policy, which I doubt, or he knows something, or they owe him. And I think that's what it is. Do I think uh, he should be advising Hillary Clinton? I think he's a perfect candidate to advise Hillary Clinton. He's sleazy, he broke the law, he will do her bidding. Uh, he should be her chief of staff, as a matter of fact. Hillary is tough on terror as long as it's popular. But once again, the real Hillary Clinton remains a mystery. We went through all the speeches that were posted on her website, some 200 of them, and there's no speech that's about counterterrorism or talks about the threat to the homeland. Whatever Mrs. Clinton took away from the 9-11 experience is now slipping away. Or perhaps she never meant it in the first place. But as far as I know, Senator Clinton simply has not wanted to discuss with clarity and certainly with 
the kind of authority you would expect from a now senior member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, that we are at war with a totalitarian ideology. I'd like to see a president in either party uh, who is going to be honest about the nature of the danger and willing to stand up and say this is what needs to be done, even if it's not popular at the moment. She doesn't seem to have any instinct to be able to do that, whatever her high intelligence might be. Who is the real Hillary Clinton? Clinton scholars and writers hoping for an answer were shocked to learn that, despite Freedom of Information Act stipulations, after three years, the Clinton Library has only released one half of one percent of its records. This is the mentality of a tyranny, and yet the media treats this as if it's no big deal. It is a very, very big deal. We paid for those documents at that library. Much of our money goes into that library. It's a federally run operation. The Clinton Library is known locally as Little Rock's Fort Knox. Nearly two million pages of records covering Hillary's years in the White House are locked away, clouding her role in policymaking. Over 300 Freedom of Information Act requests are pending. Well, that's not my decision to make, and I don't believe that any president or first lady ever has, but certainly we'll move as quickly as our circumstances and the processes of the National Archives permits. This idea they're claiming now that, that um, oh, we're, we're trying to release them, we're trying to as fast as we can, but, but the library just won't let us release them. You want the papers released, order the papers released. They're your papers. A tendency of this administration from the top all the way to the bottom is to withhold information, to resist legitimate requests for information, to refuse to be forthcoming about information that is of significance and relevant to the jobs that all of you do and the interests of the American people. I think the American people have a right to as much of the public record as possible about Hillary Clinton. Those records should be released before the 2008 election so we can learn a lot more about exactly how much influence she had in the White House, what her positions were in the White House, and how she acted in the White House. Character is defined as what we do when we think no one is looking. By that standard, many critics say the Clintons are sorely lacking. On January 20, 2001, President Clinton issued 140 pardons on his last day in office. Those pardoned or receiving commuted sentences included cocaine trafficker Carlos Vignali and the biggest tax fugitive in U.S. history, Mark Rich. As much as those pardons reveal about Bill, an earlier pardon may have revealed even more about Hillary's character and her willingness to do anything to get elected. I remember the first Met game my dad took me to, and we were sitting at the very top of Shea Stadium. It was probably 1971. It was just a beautiful day out with, with my dad. You know, he loved the Mets. He loved his sports. That's one thing that I'll never forget, is sort of being in the car with him and being at the game with him, just enjoying his presence. It was an idyllic childhood, to be honest with you. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood up until I was nine. My dad was a very decent, honest family man. As a matter of fact, on that day, January 24th, he was looking forward to coming home that Friday, celebrating my brother's 11th and my 9th birthdays. It was going to be a big family event for us. Francis Tavern has an extraordinary place in American history. It's where the Sons of Liberty met. It's where George Washington bid farewell to his officers at the end of the Revolutionary War. 
and it's also the place where Frank Connor, my father, was murdered in 1975. On January 24th, 1975, I was working as surveillance on the west side of Manhattan, and the sirens started to go off. Just an endless stream of fire trucks, police vehicles going down to the southern end of Manhattan. A short time later, turning on a radio, easy to find out that there had been a bombing at Francis Tavern. Nobody dreamt that this was a daytime bombing of a restaurant in New York City in the United States of America because it simply was not the sort of thing that happened in America. The senseless bombing had been perpetrated by what was arguably the most active terrorist organization in U.S. history, the FALN. But in 1975, the FALN was a newly formed, previously unheard of organization that through deadly violence advocated complete independence for Puerto Rico. trying to get through when there's a mistake. It really didn't happen, that he was okay. My mom says now that all she wanted to do was run. She wanted to run out the door and keep running. I remember I was a little tiny nine-year-old and there was one of the guys that picked me up and I was sort of punching him in the back, not knowing what, how to react to something like that. Joe, this is the Bissell dining room at Francis Tavern. And this is the room that suffered most of the damage in the bombing on January 24th, 1975. The bomb was placed actually just on the opposite side of these doors. Waiters and some of the other witnesses remember seeing somebody come through this door carrying a large duffel bag. Uh, he looked around the room. One of the waiters was about to approach him and tell him to, that he had to leave when he stepped back out apparently left the bomb outside. This was a typical FALN device. It was a quantity of dynamite, right. included propane tanks, which was one of their trademarks in building their bombs in the early days, and a simple timer, a wristwatch, altered to serve as a timer to set off the device. So he knew when he placed it that essentially the people that he was that he had seen were going to feel the impact of it. Absolutely. He knew that he was committing mass mur murder, no question about it. Where, where would my dad have been sitting in relation to this table? I believe your dad was sitting at the end of the table here, Joe, uh, and would have been one of the first people hit by the blast of the bomb. Joe, the bomb being just outside this door here, when it functioned, much of the blast came, of course, through into this room, knocking down this door, and that shockwave would have taken everything in the room and just made missiles out of it. So you have victims that have pieces of glassware, pieces of silverware pushed into their bodies as a result of the blast. Rick, do we know why they chose the time, the place, the day? The communique that they left said that they were trying to kill capitalist, imperialist pigs in Francis Tavern four died and more than 50 were injured it was a typical FALN operation one of over 130 bombings between 1974 and 1983 but on that crisp winter day at Francis Tavern no one could imagine what the future held for the murderous members of the FALN running for the Senate was that she wasn't a New Yorker. And how is she going to appeal to the specific ethnic groups that make up the New York State electorate? So in September 1999, 
right in the middle of her Senate campaign. She was approached by City Councilman Jose Rivera, who really is a spokesman for the Hispanic community in New York, who gave her a packet urging the pardoning of the FALN terrorists. And included in the packet was a letter to Hillary asking her to use her influence on her husband to get these pardons granted. And two days later, they were. Freedom came today for most of the 14 Puerto Ricans who accepted President Clinton's controversial gift of clemency. Eleven of them, who described themselves as nationalists, some others described them as terrorists, were released from federal prisons around the country. It made no sense. Not one of the incarcerated FALN terrorists had requested clemency or had expressed any remorse. In fact, prior to that action, the Clinton administration had granted clemency in just three cases out of over 3,000 applications, according to the Office of the Pardon Attorney at the Justice Department. It was putting a political agenda of the Clintons above my father's life. Sandy Berger appeared on television a day or two after the pardons were granted or after the clemency was granted and stated that these people were not personally involved in violence. That's simply not the fact. In this case, these people were convicted of planting 36 bombs in Chicago. If that's nonviolence, then Mr. Berger's dictionary is a little bit different than mine is. The Department of Justice uh, received a memo from the FBI saying that under no circumstances should these people be released. The President of the United States, who had access to all this information, ignored the facts of the matter. You have to ask yourself, who benefited from this besides the terrorists themselves? In my view, that have concluded the only other person that could have benefited from this was Hillary Clinton. The Senate, on a 95 to 2 vote, later denounced President Clinton's FALN clemency. Candidate Clinton claims she is the most experienced. Her husband claimed she was intimately involved in his administration. And yet, Hillary said publicly she had, quote, no involvement in or prior knowledge of the decision. Obviously, she knew about it. Obviously, she asked Bill to do the pardons. And obviously, when she says she knows nothing about it, she's not telling the truth. How dare they? Um, my father was a decent, honest um, family man. And he was being forgotten or used as a political pawn by those people who didn't have his decency, didn't have his family values, and wasn't the kind of man that my father was only two father-son presidencies in the history of our nation. We may be on the verge of the first husband and wife commander-in-chiefs. Historically, Americans have never been keen on dynasties. So it's worth remembering that a vote for Hillary is a vote to continue 20 years of a Bush or a Clinton in the White House. American people deserve to know that their presidency is not for sale, the Lincoln bedroom is not for rent, and lobbyist money can no longer influence policy in the House or the Senate. The problem with nostalgia is what we tend to do is you only remember what you like. And you write, and you forget the parts that you didn't like. So what John Edwards is saying uh, about outmoded thinking and nostalgia is really, I think, expressing um, a reluctance to turn American democracy, which is very, I think, meritocratic, over to two families. And Hillary Clinton would represent the past in that, and a continuation of, I think, a dangerous trend to electing people because of uh, how much recognition they have rather than their intrinsic qualities.
Finally, before America decides on our next president, voters should need no reminders of what's at stake, the well-being and prosperity of our nation. We uncovered a radio show that Eleanor Roosevelt, her heroine, did in 1934. Eleanor Roosevelt was asked during the show, when will a woman become president? Her answer, when a majority of the American people have trust and confidence in the integrity of her. And that's the challenge that Hillary faces. It's been said, and I agree with it, that this is the most personal political choice that Americans make. We're very interested in their personality traits, their person that they could trust, that they would like. That's where I think Hillary Clinton as a candidate has great defects. She's not accountable. She'll never be accountable personally for anything that she does. And her personality is such that she believes that the end justifies the means no matter what uh, those means are. If she weren't married to Bill Clinton, what is there that she has accomplished in her life that would lead you to believe that she should become the most powerful person in the country? Which candidate is most likely to be able to be successful in protecting us from the threat from radical Islam? That is the central crisis of our time. If she reverts to form, Hillary Clinton will likely be in the future what she has been in the past, which is a person, a woman, a politician of the left. And I don't think that's going to be good for the security of the United States. She can't favor. English is the official language of government. Has said she can't favor. 85% of the American people favor. English is the official language of government. I think there are a number of big issues where you'd have a very clear contrast. She favors liberal judges. 91% of the American people favor the right to say one nation under God. The bigger this campaign is, the bigger the choice is, the more trouble she's in. What will be important though, and this is some baggage she has to deal with, is the idea of a co-presidency, the idea that Bill Clinton will be back in the White House. Because I think when he left the White House, people had had enough. I can't imagine that Americans want to go back to, to the 90s and the country being dragged into this, this ugly, dysfunctional family drama. I certainly don't see Hillary Clinton as someone who can unify the country. Uh, President Bush didn't. I don't think she would either. critical time in this country uh, that requires leadership. And uh, I can tell you, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that uh, Hillary Clinton that I know is not equipped, not qualified to be our commander-in-chief. This vote comes down to one thing, liberty. Do you believe in liberty or don't you? Economic liberty, free speech, protecting our borders, uh, protecting our country from terrorism. The issue is liberty. On January 20th, 2009, someone will stand on the steps of the Capitol and raise his or her hand to take the oath of office. never underestimate this woman. We must never understate her chances of winning. 
We mustn't be lulled into a state of security and complacency by the newfound moderation that she likes to talk about. And we must never forget the fundamental danger that this woman poses to every value that we hold dear. You see, I know her. We're here today because our democracy is under attack. The literal counting of the vote is now owned by a private corporation. We were extremely pleased with the, the way our equipment functioned during the recall election. It would be the first machine in the history of man that would fail safe. The results will be accurate and reliable. How much more damage Yes, I'll say it, lies. You could connect to that machine, get complete control over it, change votes, um, change the software. This stuff was never corrected. What, in effect, you did is create a big, complex building, put locks on every door, use the same key for every lock, and then published a picture of the, uh, of the key on the wall. Does this seem to be a suitable security architecture to you? A busted deal here in the promised land. At the time of the most important election in our country's history, we have the greatest doubts as to whether thousands of voters are going to once again be disenfranchised. Only this time, there will be no evidence. For the first time, many Americans will be voting on paperless electronic voting machines, which are being rolled out across the nation. To begin voting, press 6. Election officials are trying to persuade the public to trust this new technology. How do I know that my vote's been counted? The memory should have taken it. But how do I know that it has? How do I know the system didn't crap out? Nobody knows. I don't know. This is would you like your life to depend on the accuracy of this machine? Uh, this is the first time we're going to use it, so I... Let me ask you a question. Would you like your life to depend on the accuracy of this machine? No. Okay. Bev Harris, a grandmother from Seattle, was curious about the machines and the corporations that make them. I had some questions about these voting machines, and I started looking on Google, and I wanted to find out how the voting machines worked. What happened next really changed my life. One reason I was so curious is because it's a secret how they work. The companies that make them keep it a secret, none of the computer scientists felt they could even look at the code because the code was supposed to be a secret. The certification labs that examine it keep their process a secret of what they do, and even the election officials who buy the equipment are prohibited by their contract from ever looking and seeing how it works. Bev did a simple search on the Internet for Diebold Election Systems, one of the three major manufacturers of voting machines. I stumbled upon an obscure web page which contained the crown jewels for Diebold Election Systems. It contained 40,000 files, all of their programs, that had been sitting there and accumulating for six years. What Bev found on Diebold's unsecured site was the secret software that counted the votes in 37 states. Thank you.
Over 70% of Americans will be voting electronically in the November presidential election, and Diebold, based in Ohio, is the market leader. The FTP site was an unfortunate situation, I admit to that. It was a situation where that information was out there, it was captured, which was our fault. We made a mistake, and we readily admit that. Will it happen again? No, it will not. After finding the files, you know, I sort of collected together some various computer scientists, and uh, Dr. Dill, I believe, Dr. David Dill from Stanford, passed the files to Dr. Avi Rubin, who was from uh, a security institute at Johns Hopkins University. The problem that Bev has discovered is, is a pretty significant security hole, and it does open the way for people uh, to really seriously manipulate the election in a way that's very difficult to detect. He examined it and wrote a paper, and by July 24th, it was in the New York Times under the headline, Stunning, Stunning Security Flaws Found in Devolt Election Systems. No one had ever had a chance to analyze the code in these machines. The companies that make them keep it proprietary and claim that it's a trade secret. And so we had a chance to see what's really going on inside of these machines. I teach a lot of graduate-level computer security courses at the Florida Institute of Technology. And if someone submitted the Diebold Jams server version that Bev showed to me as a final project, they would fail. The architecture is just that concerning. What grade would you give them? F. Dr. Thompson looked at the central tabulator for Diebold, which is something that not many people had looked at up until now. It's called the Gems system, G-E-M-S. And the central tabulator is one of the most vulnerable systems and one of the most tempting targets because it controls the most votes at once. Central tabulators for Diebold are active in a thousand counties. Each county has one or sometimes two, and they count up to two million votes at a time. Sequoia, ESNS, and Diebold uh, have the lion's share of the market. In fact, ESNS and Diebold alone have about 80% of the electronic voting market. And the two senior executives at those two companies are actually brothers. So it could be argued that there's somewhat of a cozy relationship there. They keep saying their machines are flawless, there's never been a problem, even though we can by now bring forward solid evidence of hundreds of elections that have been miscounted and that have indeed been flawed. Why should we trust Diebold? Accuracy and security and reliability of the equipment. First of all, let me just mention there's a lot of checks and balances in addition to the actual equipment. The accuracy's been there, the reliability's been there, everything is tested before it's ever deployed for an election. Time after time, our equipment has certainly proved to be accurate and reliable. Diebold has a very strong marketing uh, effort, and they continue to just say their lines, which is the machines are 100% secure, there's never been fraud in an election. Our company reviews and, and checks and verifies software for many of the Fortune 500 and for the U.S. government. And so, you know, kind of seeing this thing in, in software that's going to be used to count votes was, was really disturbing. The biggest problem that he found was that there was more than one way into it. There was the official way in, and then there were these sort of secret backdoor ways in, and using those backdoor ways you could alter the results without leaving any trace. Andy Stevenson was running for Secretary of State in Seattle when he read Bev's revelations on her website, blackboxvoting.org. But when I first saw the GEMSAC, I was still actually running for office. And my reaction was, is, <laughs> bleep, <laughs> I'm screwed. So I sent Bev an email offering her to help her in any way that I could. I asked him to call 
and find out if Bob Yurosevich was still the president of Diebold, because there was some question about it at that time. They were keeping him kind of under wraps. So I called his house, and his wife answered and apparently was on a plane, and she said he'd, he'd call me back after I said, well, I heard that he's not president anymore of Diebold. And almost immediately got a call back from Bob Yurosevich threatening him and saying, you better back off or you're going to get a visit. I said, from who, Bob? <laughs> the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus? And he says, I'm serious. And I said, so am I. I'm from Texas. I'm not afraid of you. And so I called Andy up about 10.30 at night and said, you want to take off tomorrow early? And uh, let's go make some visits. So Andy and I took off for a nine-state tour to find out what's really going on. Bev and Andy discovered that many states, including Washington, were using illegal software that hadn't been tested to check if it counted votes accurately. You know, it's darn hard to get answers about our own voting system. Andy and I approached Mr. Evan, who's the assistant Washington State Attorney General, and asked him questions about what we do if the Secretary of State certifies software illegally. And he said, well, I defend the Secretary of State. So you can't report it to us. I don't know if there's anything I can do here. I'd encourage you to take this up with the Secretary of State's office. They're the Secretary of State's State office has lied to us. They've lied to us. Yeah. They're the appropriate authority. It's, it's a criminal matter if you have Secretary of State's office who is presiding over the use of software in elections machines that has, is, and the software itself is in violation of our own state law. Not to my knowledge. Um, what redress do the citizens have? Voting. But if the voting machines are rigged, how do we kind of change that? Yeah, that's an issue you have to take up with the Secretary of State. There isn't anything else I can add. What was Thank your you. name? Jeff Evans. The headquarters in the United States for the Diebel Election Systems is McKinney, Texas. We took an advantage of the fact that they left their trench wide open for anyone to take a look at. And in fact, we found um, the complete contents of Bobby Rosevich's personal paper wastebasket stash, and in it was a number of were a number of documents that were really very important. Yeah. You know, one would think that a democracy that is transparent, you wouldn't need to go through an I spy game to try to figure out how the heck your vote's being counted. But I guess that in today's world. That's what privatization means. Some of the things we've got here, Andy, are really interesting. I would, I, let me tell you, this one, don't look, you watch the road, I'll read it to you. How did stuff get sent to Canada, get back to us, then get resent to customers as new? <laughs> this is a deep old um, notation. Here's one from Tippecanoe, Indiana. And they had many concerns, apparently they were withholding their payments for some reason. And uh, the touch screen units would not upload correctly on election night. How much more damage can I stand? It's important your company is impartial, isn't it? Yes. Then why did your chief executive officer promise to deliver the votes in Ohio to George W. Bush? That 
quotation that appeared in the letter is something that uh, he regrets. It's a situation where his personal preference has come over into his, his business practice and he regrets that ever happening. Uh, he has committed to, to keeping a much lower profile when it comes to those types of activities because of that statement. I have to tell you, my son has grown now. I, I never thought I was going to have to spend the second half of my life fighting for my son's right to vote. But when I realized he might not have that right, then I just decided, well, by golly, you know, not if I can help it. We're going to make sure that he keeps it. Bev's next stop was San Diego, California, where she met Jennifer Hamilton, a poll worker. Jennifer was astonished when county officials told her to take the new computers home with her until the election. Hi. Hey, I'm looking for Pam and Jennifer. I'm Bev. I'm Jim Hamilton. Bev. Hi, Jim. Uh, Are you Pam? Pam? You're Jennifer. I knew that. I knew it wasn't Pam. I knew it was Jennifer. <laughs> and so you're telling me, just so I understand this right, because this is actually mind-boggling, that 1,600 people went home with voting machines that night. Yes, yeah, some of them for almost a month. And could you explain to me the careful background check they did on each person? Uh, they asked us for our name and to sign in at training. And that's it. Yeah. No identification on no well, I would like to know, this is probably a written procedure, wouldn't you think? I'd like to see the written procedure that says the procedure is when they come in, you ask for their name, and then you give them a voting machine. <laughs> this is my dad, Jim, my mom, Charlene. Right, now, where, where did they put the, car, the machines? The they put them in the back seat? Where did they put them? All right. So you drove in. You had a car full of voting machines. Uh, most of them they put in the back seat. So we're loading up the loading up the machines in the car. We got a couple of them in the trunk. They were all the machines. Were, yeah, the machines were lined up against the wall here. At no point did they ever ask for uh, for any any form of identification at all. No proof of uh, registration to vote. No proof of anything. Were there any precincts that anybody knows about where the um, number of voters who signed in versus the number of votes that showed up was either too many or too little? Meaning? We had two machines where the total number of votes on the screen was not the same as the total number of votes on the printout. Wait a minute. That's the first I've heard of that. The thing is, though, is that I called at that point because I said, well, there's, there's a difference here between what it says on the printout is the total and what the screen says is the total. And so I said, well, you know, what do I do? And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Okay. And I said, bookkeeping question. Wait a minute. What, what do you mean yeah. don't worry about it? We're talking about lost votes because the number on the printout is less than the number on the screen. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. When the units go through their logic and accuracy testing before they're deployed for an election, and the, the test goes fine, they're ready to go, they're closed, and there's a protective tamper seal that's placed on every one of the units, and it also has a serial number on it. If those ship to the location and that seal is broken or that number does not match, that unit is not used in that election. So if that has been tampered with in any way, it's pulled. This is the seal. 
Oh, I would like to see the seal. Wait, wait. This is a piece of paper. Okay, but this is a... The seal is stuck to the piece of paper. But you could run one of these on a Xerox machine. Yes, you could. Okay. And then this particular seal is on regular paper with some sort of adhesive on the back. Thickum paper. Oh, wait, you know what? You can actually re-adhere re it, can't you? Mm -hmm. And Probably. you can actually take it off, and then you can put it back on. Right. It, it says, on. though, but it says, the noblest motive is, is the public, public good. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to cut to the chase, when they say that these machines have been sealed, and so that you can tell that nobody has tampered with it, that is complete baloney. I was told uh, by some of the manufacturers that... Um, they keep the procedures around the security secret because it's much safer that way for it to be secret. Oh, yeah, but it's certainly not for security reasons, <laughs> at least not for good security reasons. If they want it to be secret, it's because their security is so lax. I mean, this totally sucks. Now, the central tabulator is sort of the one machine to rule them all. It collects all the votes. And every company, not just Ebold, has this central tabulator. Because, of course, the way you vote is you vote in individual precincts. They're scattered around. And there has to be one machine to pull all these threads together, add them all up, and pronounce the winner. Bev was invited to New York to meet former presidential candidate Howard Dean. Bev sat me down. And in a few short seconds, I was amazed at what I could do. All right, Bev, show me how to do this. Well, what we have here is the central tabulator computer. Now, in a voting system, you have all these different voting machines at all the different polling places. Sometimes, in, as in a county like mine, there's a 1,000 polling places in one county. All those machines feed into the one machine so it can add up all the votes. So, of course, if you were going to do something you shouldn't to a voting machine, would it be more convenient to do it to the 4,000 machines or to just come in here to one machine and, and deal with all of them at once? What surprises people is the central tabulator is just a PC. It's like you and I use. It uses Windows. It's just a regular computer. So well, anybody who can hack into a PC can hack into the central tabulator. The GEM program is the program that is the central tabulator program. And I'm going to put in a password here. Okay, we're in. Now, this is the official program that the county supervisor sees. Is Up this to the, the uh, Debold program? Yes, this is a Debold central tabulation program. Okay. And then go to election summary report. And it's going to have Warren spin for a minute while it adds up all the votes from all the different precincts. And as we can see here, Howard Dean has 1,000 votes, and Lex Luthor has 500. So you're beating Lex Luthor, and we're... Two to one. Yes, and Tiger Woods, unfortunately, doesn't have any votes yet. All right. All right, let's close this out. I was just showing you the legitimate way to go in and look at votes, which, all of right. course, you can't tamper with. Go to the Start menu, and I'm going to show you something tricky. And I want you to go to My Computer and just click that. And you're going to see some come up, go to local disk C, go to GEMS, which is the name of the Debold program. We're going to go to local DB, which stands for local database. That's where they keep the votes. And by the way, this has been out on the internet for ages now. Go to central tabulator votes, which is the database we just looked at. And then go to the sum of the candidates, which is that table. You see we have 800 votes here for you and 400 for Lex Luthor. Let's just flip those. We'll make that 400, and we'll give 100 votes to Tiger. Let's just see what happened here. We'll go back into GEMS the legitimate way. You're the county supervisor. You're checking on the progress of your election. And as you can see now, Howard Dean only has 500 votes. Lex Luthor has 900, and Tiger Woods has 100 votes. Mm. We just edited the election. It took us 90 seconds. 
But human beings can't see what's happening inside the computers. And so we cannot check the results or recount them. A voter verifiable audit trail is a paper record of the vote, ideally a ballot, that the voter can review that records that voter's vote. That record has to be saved. It can't be carried out of the ballot place by the voter. Kept in a secure ballot box, like any other paper ballot, and it has to be available for a recount. In a recount, if there's a discrepancy between paper records and the electronic records, the paper records have to have precedence. In my home counties, Broward and Palm Beach counties in South Florida, as well as 13 other counties, which make up about half of the vote in Florida, were voting on electronic machines that were incapable of conducting a manual recount in a close election, even though Florida law requires a manual recount. And when we started asking questions of the governor and his appointed secretary of state, they kept saying, oh, no, we can, we can do the recounts or we don't need to do the recounts because the machines are infallible, which really seemed a bit uh, concerning to me. The last time we heard that a machine was infallible was before the Titanic set sail. I have met with the scientists about the equipment that they have in Florida. I mean, I, I got to tell you a little secret. My bank account, if I make a deposit in Jacksonville, you know, they give me a receipt. I can go here in Washington and make a withdrawal. So it's no big deal. The technology is there. So why is it that you have machines that cannot give us a slip of paper verifying that I voted so we can keep an accurate account of what's going on? Louisiana held its first touchscreen election in 1996 using Sequoia machines. Local council candidate Susan Berniker will never forget her election day. Susan narrowly lost and decided to contest the election results and ask for a recount. Okay, so this is where the warehouse was. They have now moved it since my election. It was back here in, in these buildings. And um, this is where I came the day that the uh, warehouses are open to the candidates to inspect. So I came here with an old college buddy, and he is now a, a, a TV producer, and he grabbed his camera. We walked in, and I asked them to show me how the machine worked. They pressed a button, and out came a tape. And the tape had the names of the candidates with a total. And I said, well, that's nice. I got that on election night, but how do I know? Where, do you have, like, a mark or something that shows each tally of each vote? How do we go back and, and tally and count the votes? And they said, well, you pretty much can't. And that is when I said, oh, my goodness, what, this is terrible. We can't count our votes. So how do we know this is right? So I just started fooling around with the machine. And it's when I pushed my name, I pressed the button next to my name, and then I look down and I see Mr. Gambaluka's name in the display when I press Susan Bernacker. Shall we do it again? Do it again. Yeah. Okay, here we go again. I'm pressing Bernacker. Gambaluka shows up. So we went down the row 
We probably tested 15 machines, and I said, you know what, we don't have to test anymore. Again, I'm pressing Bernecker. I got Gambaluka. How easy is it to rig an election where you have a situation in a voting machine that you can't prove the vote? One way of looking at the worst thing that could happen with an election is it could actually just be stolen. Thousands and thousands of these voting machines are running software written by a small number of people. If one of those people puts something malicious in the software and it's distributed to all the machines, then that one person could be responsible for the change of possibly tens of thousands of votes, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Since my election, that our state official elections commissioner has been put in jail for accepting money uh, on a fraudulent basis connected with elections. Georgia is the first state to use only touchscreen voting machines, a $54 million contract awarded to Debo. July 20, 2004 was the statewide election day and the congressional primary for Democratic candidate Cynthia McKinney. Georgia itself has conducted over 300 very successful elections with our equipment. You haven't seen the issue in Florida with our equipment. Quite honestly, the, the capabilities of our equipment eliminate a lot of those risks, such as disenfranchisement. We had one precinct today where there were a total of 17 voting machines, but only two of them worked. And so the election officials had to resort to the use of paper ballots. But they didn't have enough paper ballots, so after 25 people had the opportunity to vote, then um, there, was, there were no more paper ballots. This is not the way an election is supposed to run. Suppose that we didn't have any computers at all, and when you went to vote, the voting booth was separated by a curtain, and there was a guy behind the curtain who would write down your votes. So you just dictate them, he writes them down, and when you're done, you leave without being able to look at the ballot. Most people in their right mind would not trust this process. I just voted for myself. <laughs> electronic voting is similar. In an electronic voting machine, you don't have a little guy inside the machine taking dictation, but you have lots of people who are involved in writing the software and lots of people who could have touched the software before it went into that machine. I'm hopeful that my vote will be counted today. There's no accountability in the process, and you have to wonder why. How confident are you? Well, we've got, we're backing up my hope with a team of lawyers. Cynthia's legal team has been called out to a precinct where all the voting machines have malfunctioned. It's in a McKinney stronghold where many of the voters are poor and black. What we're understanding the problem is, one of the problems, there are several problems here at Snapfinger, and what I've been told is the precinct is hot overall and the machines have begun to go in and out and several voters have reported problems when they have made a selection of their candidate of choice, another candidate is getting the vote. I went in, um, got my little voting card, put it in the machine, went to vote for the candidate of my choice, who happened to be Cynthia McKinney. Uh, when I pressed the box on the touch screen next to her name, the box 
before Luann Levitan uh, got the check, the bridge uh, check mark instead. Time of malfunction, 1 p.m. Wow, 1 p.m. It's 4.35. Three and a half hours. Linda, this yes. is Karen Fitzpatrick. Hey, I'm fine, lady, and I wanted to make several clarifications. And the problems were because there was not enough air and ventilation in the precinct, okay. not because of any human error or anything else, but because of the heat, the systems began to malfunction. Okay, but I, I, for whatever reason, they didn't seem to call our office. They called from 1 o'clock. Who did they call? They are all. Seabow technicians? Yeah, yeah. And nobody a turned number up. that the, the director of supervisor of elections gave them to call if there was a problem with the machine. Right. They and called it from 1 o'clock. And nobody turned up. We have no technician at 5.13. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Jasper Russell just came up. And actually, he's one of your employees that you probably don't know that's been designated as the machine technician. He's, is he working in the pole? Yes. Yes, yes I am. You're a pole worker? Yes, I am. Well, if you are a pole worker, he is a specialist working from, from our office, so how can you judge what's happening with that Debo machine? Because it's happening to many of them. No, you need to come and talk to him. And, and you, you can't issue a statement like that without having a default representative out there to test those machines, darling. Let's just end because we, we're not trying to get you all in. We watch. Machine after machine get carted out of her office and loaded in a car and taken somewhere. We actually stopped two guys who had the machines dragging them across the parking lot. And we said, hey, where are you going with those voting machines? Well, we're Debo technicians. We're going out to replace some failed batteries. This is what uh, I guess we're trying to export to Iraq. On that day in Georgia, Cynthia McKinney was the only candidate to have dedicated poll watchers in the field. And against all odds, the unexpected happened. Well, and the outcome was a very positive outcome for me because I won. <laughs> Cynthia traveled to the nation's capital to meet Bev and Andy and their team of activists so together they could get the message out to voters across America. This is a country where we roll up our sleeves and get it done. And so we're going to be discussing some solutions that are doable, that will put some procedural safeguards in place to at least mitigate the risk. Well, I mean, this is absolutely incredible, totally credible, though, because we know that computer systems are not secure. We just need to get it solved now. That's right. We need the electorate to actually get electric about this election mm -hmm. and actually show up at the polls and vote Absolutely. and have their eyes and ears open. I'm going to be a poll worker again. I've uh, convinced several other people to become poll workers. My parents are going to be poll watchers. And that's really what needs to be done, is that people need to become involved. The more people who go vote, the more tampering needs to be done in order to fudge those folks. So if you're worried about it, it's not the time to stay home. It's the time to get out there and say, well, then I'm definitely going to vote, and so is my mother and my sister. When I talk with a lot of young people, they come up to me, they say they're scared. Older people say, well, you know, maybe my vote won't count. Let me 
tell you something. We each got to be soldiers. Uh, this is an army. We're in a fight. Now, you don't have to go against holes and fires arms and other things to get. The only thing you have to do as a soldier, you just got to march to the ballot box. You just got to march to the ballot box. You've got to make sure everybody in your family get out and vote. Exercising one's right to vote is as American as apple pie. There's nothing democratic about it or republican about it in a partisan country. It is the essence, it is the frame work from which all of our democratic ideals and principles emanate from. Your right to vote is sacred. Uh, and that's all we're seeking to protect. Your right to vote and the right to have your vote counted. You don't necessarily want to run a country uh, as a, or a democracy based on just complete blind trust. If you just close your eyes and say, I just trust, then you might walk off a cliff. And the thing that's so fragile about democracy is that it just takes one mistake. If people just blindly trust and say, but I think it's probably okay that we don't get to look at the software, we don't get to know how this works, and we're just going to trust everybody to get it right for us, and we're wrong just one time, we could lose everything. We could lose everything we've worked for for 240 years in this country. Every day I get, you know, hundreds of phone calls from people. What can I do? What can I do? Well, here's what you can do. Vote. vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.